Did you ever have access to, let's say, government secrets that were so big that humanity could never find out about it? Humanity is too big of a word. So I would say I have absolutely had access to secrets that would impact how the American public would respond. What do you mean by that? Meaning I, the roles that I filled, the operations that I participated in, were operations that were relevant and impactful to Americans. They were relevant and impactful to other countries as well, but never humanity as a whole. concrete which is great with you and jim diorio can't wait to do that again but you always get requested man people always want to hear bustamante again after i have you after the last two episodes we did each week they're like bring them back in next week i'm like he lives in florida it doesn't work this way <laughs> and now you're the biggest spy in the world now you know it's crazy man it's crazy seeing how the internet has reacted from the first time we had a conversation to the conversation that we're having today and what's wild is the stuff that you want to talk about today just the just the questions that you've kind of just given me to chew on coming up here are so relevant. I'm just super excited. Which questions were those? You you said you want to talk about Syria. Oh you right, want to right, talk right, about right, Iran. Right. Yeah. You want to talk about? I mean, dude, what I love about coming up here is that you never talk about boring stuff. You always talk about relevant, impactful stuff, and I'll take that 100% of the days. Hey, that's what we're trying to do, man. I mean, it's. I, I never lose sight of the fact that I'm some dude in a hat who works in a podcast on a podcast in his parents' house, and there's a whole world out there of going on, and guys like you were in the middle of that, and that is the beauty of having a platform like this. I get to talk to people doing cool shit around the world. So if we're going to have discussions on highly nuanced, complicated, crazy shit going on, I want to do it with guys who have been in the middle of it with right. espionage and everything and have to think about these things and, you know, might still actively be working on it, too. That's oh, my gosh. For sure. Yeah. We, we had to hit that right The accusations away. keep flying. <laughs> uh, if, if I could have time to spy on top, of this, on top of the stuff that I'm already doing, I don't even know that it would pay the bills. I don't think it would be I'd make enough money spying if I had to work for CIA right now. Actually, I know I wouldn't. My company made more money last month than I made in a year. I believe that. When I was a CIA officer. It was mind-boggling, dude. First time that has ever happened to me. And it was absolutely mind-boggling, and it was absolutely one of those moments where you realize you did something right. You know, we, we always... So I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if I've told you this before. The average person has somewhere to the tune of 120,000 thoughts a day. Mm. 70,000 of those thoughts are negative thoughts. So the vast majority of the thoughts that we have on any given day are negative thoughts. Right. And one of those thoughts that I know plagues me all the time is, did I make the right call? Did I make the right call? Did I make mm -hmm. the right call? Because you never really know if you could have made a call differently, if it would have gone better. But after finding after doing the, the accounting last month, I was like, I made the right call, made the right call getting out of CIA financially, at least made the right call starting a business. Uh, and to think that I spent most of that month, you know, playing with my kids on the floor, taking That's my wife out cool. to dinner. 
It was a good month. That's pretty good. And you live in Florida, too. That helps. <laughs> always. It always helps. We got good weather this time of year around here. But in, in the winter, I keep thinking that, like, maybe the move is Miami. But anyway, yeah, there is, as we bury the lead right there out front, there is a lot of shit going on. One of the things that I had been talking with you on the phone a couple months ago when we were talking about Sean Ryan and everything was about the state of the country, though, and, like, our place in the world. And this is a topic that you're really, really good at delving into all the things that go into that. And probably the most prescient the most prescient thing you ever said to me that was simple that made me reset like oh my god i was thinking of this all wrong was when you said the only thing that matters is gdp Mm. and like that when you said that on that first podcast we did i'm like of course what what was i thinking my whole life you know what i mean and so i asked this because there is a country right now china who is just barely second in GDP to us, they have a bigger population. There's a whole bunch of things obviously going on over there, but there seems to be this whole like pushing going on now, even in media, this kind of did a 180 where it's like suddenly like, oh, we got to talk about China left and right. And you're a guy who has expertise in that part of the world and has been talking about this since long before it was in vogue. So as it stands right now, do you still view China as like the number one threat to, let's say, the superiority of our currency in the world and our place in the standings of GDP? So I think it's important to note that I don't have to have an opinion, right? Because opinions mean that there's not enough evidence. What we have here is actual documented fact. We have the, uh, the intelligence assessment of the director of national intelligence, the DNI, Plus, we have the assessment from the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in the United States, right? So these are to the military and the intelligence leadership of the country have both released estimates in 2023 that clearly show that that China is the number one largest strategic threat to American primacy in the uh, in the immediate future and in the foreseeable future. And what they're saying there is that it's a threat to us and our national security, not because they're pointing guns at us, right? Other people are pointing much more dangerous weapons at us than China. North Korea launches test missiles and test nukes, uh, test missiles that are capable of carrying nukes. You know, Iran talks about uh, wiping Israel and Americans in the West off the face of the planet. There are much more, uh, more boisterous, flamboyant mm-hmm. threats. So really what these assessments are saying is that China is the biggest threat because it has the opportunity, it has the, the potential to become the largest economy. And when you are the largest, the largest economy, you have the largest budget to build weapons, sell weapons, research and develop new weapons, and export your, your foreign policy ambitions around the world. So it's not my opinion. It's actual documented fact from the highest levels of American government that the Chinese threat is our number one strategic threat as American citizens. What do you think of, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that Peter Zahn said, you and I have talked about him at least once, but I don't know how much of it you've watched or anything, but he's this geopolitical strategist who goes online and, and has a lot of takes on a lot of different things, but one of the things he really goes at is specifically like 10 to 15 years out, demographically speaking, he's like China's. Yeah. You know, he keeps saying that they're going to have a major famine. Their supply chains are all messed up after COVID because that did, some of that really actually did backfire on them, which is pretty interesting. But he's also saying like, oh, they're not having kids. So yes, they have 1.4, 1.5 billion right now, but they won't. And they're going to have an economic crisis when that starts to, to crash. I've always thought like a lot can happen in 10 to 15 years on the way there. So that's 
always a concern. So it's like, well, if there's going to be problems in the meantime, I care about that. But like, do you think that there's any validity to what he says long term on on some of those things? You know, I think you you nailed it right there. A lot can happen in 10 to 15 years. And that's why CIA and the intelligence infrastructure of the United States, we don't really worry about long-term assessments. If anything, uh, what we do, so there's a, a term that uh, analysts use called the cone of uncertainty. And the cone of uncertainty is exactly what it sounds like. It's If you can imagine a cone, you can imagine a cone that's following like a string, all right? The string is what's happened in the past you know exactly what's happened in the past. So it's a very finite thing. It's, it's already happened. And then where the string enters into the cone, it enters into the small end of the cone, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what it's saying there is that you can't really see what's inside the cone. So there's an area in there between the string and the cone. That's an area of possibility. But then as the cone goes out further and further, the cone gets wider and wider, right? Because the opening of a cone is so much bigger than the small triangular entrance of a cone. That's the same thing that we use when we talk about the cone of uncertainty. It means that as time progresses on, you become less and less confident in what's going to happen in the future. We can forecast with relative confidence what's going to happen 12 hours from now, 36 hours from now, three days from now, two weeks from now. But as time goes on further and further, it becomes even more difficult to forecast. So when Peter Zehan talks about 10 to 15 years from now, China's going to have this massive collapse. I trust that whatever analysis he's doing right now that's giving him the confidence to say that publicly, I trust that he believes the data that he's looking at. But 10 to 15 years is, is the fat part of the mm-hmm. cone of uncertainty. Yes, that could happen. What he's, what he's assessing could happen, but a lot of other things could happen too. Think about the policy changes they could make in the next 10 to 15 years yeah. to fix their demographic problem. Think about the countries that are going to exist and not exist anymore. Sudan used to be one country. Now it's two. Potentially, that's going to turn into three, right? All of that's happened in the last two decades. What are, Sean talked about this a little bit. What are they doing in Africa? Like he mentioned that they're basically buying up real estate everywhere, and so they're making those deals directly with the governments there. Is it deeper than that, though? Yeah, so what, what you see China specifically doing, not just in Africa but throughout the third world, is something formerly known as the Belt and Road Initiative, Yes, right, the BRI. And it's their chance to, to uh, fund, bankroll infrastructure and development projects around the third world. Now, there's two benefits to that. One, they become the economic beneficiary of whatever trade comes as a result of those new roads or the new ports or the new electric infrastructure, whatever else. Plus, they're employing Chinese to build those things overseas. Mm -hmm. So they're creating jobs and they're creating um, revenue and they're creating uh, resources for uh, the future of China by building these or investing in these projects around the world. But then the second benefit to them is they also have leverage over that country because they just built clean water for Ghana and now Ghana couldn't pay for it. So Ghana took a loan from the Chinese. It's a loan shark. Yeah, it's essentially that's what it is, right? So now they have two two distinct benefits, a strategic location, all the, all the uh, resources that come from that location, plus they have a financial edge. So it's really that financial piece that China's looking for because China has looked to the United States and watched what the United States has done for the last 40 years. And unfortunately, I think China understands our GDP, to use your term, better than most Americans understand our GDP. America's 
wealth does not come from the fact that we are innovative with good colleges and we create high technology. That's not where it comes from. The vast majority of the wealth and the GDP that we generate actually comes from financial institutions. It hmm. comes from the fact that we are the center of financial investment information, financial products, financial transactions all over the world. And we take a piece of everything. So what China really wants to do is find a way to expand their financial footprint. How do they have more people taking more loans in UN? How do they have more people taking more loans in Chinese currency? How do they have more, more uh, stocks, more shares, more publicly traded companies that can actually generate financial uh, transactions without having to produce an actual physical product. And that means that, obviously, all their private citizens or companies that are, quote-unquote, on the end of these transactions, they're owned by the government. They have to show everything to the government, so the government is obviously counting that towards the actual control that they have. It Obviously, it helps their GDP when they're getting on in on these deals, but this is, I assume that this also goes into, like you're talking about finances and everything, but this goes right into like buying up our real estate and some of the other places, I guess, like what they're doing in Africa, but they're doing here too in America. Yeah, and it's funny because a lot of the investments that China has put into Africa specifically, uh, especially in recent history, in the last 60 days or so, those have started to fail. They've, they've, they've leveraged loans or given loans mm. to countries that can't pay them back. And now there's the IMF has been trying to challenge China to say, hey, you know, Ghana is another great example of this. This country has six billion, I think, six billion in loans that they owe back to China. And China's trying to say that they have to pay back those loans, but Ghana doesn't have that money. And the IMF said, we're not going to come true and we're not going to pay China six million dollars because of Ghana's debt. So they're forcing the Chinese now to have to learn how to accept and balance sheets even when they don't get money back. And that's a big part of this, the challenge that's existing right now in Africa and in China's efforts with their Belt and Road Initiative. It's mm -hmm. not just one country. There's actually multiple countries between Southeast Asia and Africa who are unable to pay back the debts that China gave them. There's some problems with that in South America, too, I think, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to be a problem as China learns how to be more of a financial player around the world. The United States has been doing this for a long time, so we understand that's one of the reasons that we don't give everybody loans. We, one of the big challenges that the United States has is that we try not to participate in transactions that aren't going to be profitable. And because of that, we have lost influence over the last 30 years. Countries that used to want to do business with the United States still want to do business with the United States, but the United States says, no, you're not reliable, your countries are unstable, you're not democracies. So we stiff arm these countries, and then they end up being pissed at us, so they go to somewhere else. So then China has learned that loans are a way to win influence all over the world because the United States is saying no. We've, we've kind of painted ourselves into that corner, but now China's starting to pay the price of, you know, sometimes when you give a loan to somebody who doesn't deserve a loan, you don't get your money back. See, this is the core of, a, like, this right here is a symbol for the core of, like, the central question when it comes to any policy foreign-wise that America could have and our citizens' attitudes towards that. You know, I, I hear from two crowds because they're the two loudest online all the time when it comes to, say, foreign policy for America, and it's either America's all war criminals, we need to retreat from the world libertarians, or it's no, we need to be the police everywhere, war hawks. And like everything else in, in society, I think the answer's somewhere in the middle. But one thing I do think about a lot, not to 
not to prop it up and like write it off and say, oh, well, for sure. But when you start putting rules on yourself on how you deal with other countries, someone else is going to break those rules and then take advantage of that. And so this is a very, the reason I'm saying this is very messy is all the obvious points that are probably popping into people's heads right now. When you think about like, well, the rights we have under the constitution in America, when you think about the types of people we are in bed with money-wise, which is exactly what you were just laying out. When you think about the symbolism and how the media can run with certain narratives on decisions you may make that are pro-America and not necessarily good for another place, but it's what we got to do. So sitting in your kind of seat where you've had to be a soldier on the ground, so to speak, in the middle of this stuff, what do you say to the people who are idealists and want everything that we do to be totally clean. They don't want to ever hear about us influencing an election in South America. They don't want to hear about putting people inside the cartels and dealing with that trade to an advantageous way that doesn't end it. Like, what do you say to those people who want that utopitarian world? They don't want that world. They, they think they want that world because they don't know what the other world looks like, right? So we've got to understand that there are, you're exactly right. There are two very loud camps, ruckus camps, that are 95% of what we hear, right? We hear extreme points of view on the left, extreme points of view on the right, and, and nobody says anything about the middle. But one of the things that's really important is when you look at human beings, when you look at a society, a society is a normalized population. The United States has roughly 180 million adults, right? 300, 300 million uh, people live in the United States. I think it's 350 now, actually. Is it 350? Yeah. So somewhere somewhere to the tune of 200 million adults, right? China has, obviously, many, many more than that. But the way that you can compare groups of people, despite the fact that they have different, different uh, cultural identities, different spiritual backgrounds, or whatever else, is you look at the normalized set. When you look at all the adults in the United States, you have what's known as a bell curve. And everybody remembers bell curves from economics and from mathematics. So when we talk about the extreme left and the extreme right, and you look at a bell curve, you're literally talking about the shallow ends of the bell curve. Yes. So that means the shallow ends of the bell curve on both sides are making the majority of the content, the noise, the criticism that we hear. Well, what about everybody in the fat part of the bell curve? That's what I call the silent masses, right? The silent middle part of the bell curve. Those people don't necessarily agree with the crazy left or the crazy right, but they listen because that's what's out there. And they are always kind of difficult to pin down because they have some beliefs that lean left and some beliefs that yes. lean right. So it's really important to understand that when you, t when you ask your question to me, what about the people who want this perfect utopian, whatever, 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 that is a small population that really has surrounded themselves with only one, one source of information yeah. that's feeding this garbage to them that somehow the world and human beings are good. Human beings are not good. Human beings aren't kind. They're not generous. Can people be kind and can people be generous? Absolutely. Especially when they have an excess of resources, right? There's a reason why the Middle East, like Bedouins in the Middle East, there's a reason why they fought their entire history while people in the Amazon learned to live at peace because mm -hmm. one had naturally more resources. I don't feel like I have to fight you to the death over a mango when there's 600 mangoes growing around us. But when you're in the middle of the desert and there's like one date tree and that one date tree produces 50 dates, 
we might have to fight to the death to make sure that I have dates to feed my family for the next month and you don't. All right, guys, the Julian Dory pop-up shop is officially live. The link is down in the description below. Go check out the items. There's 13 different designs we put in there. And by we, I mean me and my friends over at 23.5. Big shout out to Poria, John, and Belmer who have been helping me out, as well as Chris, who's no longer on their team, but was a huge help behind the scenes for the last four months. So what we did is you can see on the screen right now, I'm putting a couple of the designs we did, but... There's just some different things we're throwing at the wall to see what you guys like. So let me know in the comments below if you bought something and what you bought. And also, tag me on Instagram. I'll put it on the story. I want to get some buzz around this. But the shop is only going to be available for a limited time. It is going to be going down. I'm not telling you when, but it's not going to be up very soon. So make sure you get in there. Hit that link in the description. Go check out what you want. And I'm really looking forward to getting the feedback on this first drop. We've been working hard on it and want to make sure you guys get some really good gear from the show. And there will be more moving forward for sure. So go get it. Do you really, in saying that though, that people aren't kind, are you falling potentially into some of the same trap from a human nature perspective that you talked about with the bell curve though? Because my thought immediately goes towards, well, just like you said, these annoying people on the ends of the bell curve make up 95% of the noise. The annoying people who are either, you know, all bad or like, I don't know, holy or something like that, they tend to make up the bell curve on, at least from what I see, on a foreign scale and, and diplomatically and things like that. So do you think it's more like, you've seen the worst of the worst in the environments you've had to be in because it's not like you were sent into great environments. They didn't be like, they're not like, yo, Andy, we're going to send you to Utopiaville over here with all these <laughs> fucking people who are happy and they own nothing and are happy, you know, all that shit. Yeah. They sent you to places where it's like, yo, you, this guy's got to go. I think more than that, what it was is my experience with people around the world in different conditions like you're describing has shown me that we're not as different as we, we try to think we are. Mm. So maybe in, in poverty-stricken Southeast Asia or poverty-stricken Africa, maybe there you'll actually find two 10-year-olds that hit each other with clubs. That might actually happen because they're fighting over whatever, right? You wouldn't find that in most civilized parts of the United States. But that doesn't necessarily mean that violent thoughts don't go through their heads, mm. right? So when I say that people aren't, aren't kind, what I mean is people aren't kind, like, what happens is that when we have an opportunity to show kindness or selfishness to somebody else, usually the first thought that goes through our head is a thought of self-preservation, a thought of survival. What do I need? If what I need is met and I have excess, then I'll share it with you. If I have excess time, then I might say something kind. If, I'm, if I don't have time and you need kindness, I might just walk right past you. Because but, I'm not going to spend what time I don't have trying to comfort you or say something nice to you. Are you commingling urge with action, though? That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like you're referring to the natural... Just like you said, we have 70,000 negative thoughts out of 120 a day, which actually I thought that was low. Mm. I would have said it was 80 or 90 because mm. humans are wired to run away from the fucking bear chasing them towards our cave, right? It's right. not a positive thought. <laughs> like, our, we're wired towards survival, fighting off death. That's, like, the meaning of life, which is a very bizarre thing to think about. But, like, when you're talking about they're not kind you are referring to those initial impulses not necessarily what they end up doing correct correct because what you end up doing becomes a matter of how many resources you have but our it, our initial instincts our initial reaction is going to be 
self-preservation first over our fellow man, which is completely the opposite of what people think of when they think of utopia. And they think in utopia, they think that your fellow man's watching out for you. I'm sorry, that's not how human beings work. We are pack animals. We are tribal creatures, which means we bond into packs and we bond into tribes, not because we care about the other people in the tribe. It's because we know that the tribe can take care of us. That's what makes us tribal, just like wolves, just like lions, right? That's why we come together, because we see a benefit for ourselves when we're together. How do people gain your trust? Uh, I don't know that people gain my trust very well. There's, That's what I thought. Yeah, the number of people that I trust, I mean, I, th I can count them on my two hands. And when I think about the people that I trust, it's really more, who do I trust to do certain things? There are some people I trust to actually have my back no matter what happens. My wife is one of those people. No matter what happens, I know she's got my back. Then there's other people that I trust, but maybe just short of anything, right? Somebody says something shitty about me on the internet, somebody will back me up. Somebody takes me to court, some, some guys will back me up, but not all of them. Was it like that before the CIA too? No. Yeah. yeah. So the CIA does a great job of kind of helping you to understand your own flawed points of view. Like most of our, most of our um, values, our preferences, our ideas about how the world works, most of them actually are conditioned into us through childhood. So they're conditioned into us by what we see from our parents, what we see in our family, what we see on television or in the movies, um, what we learn in church, what we see in school from other children. That kind of conditions us to be the way we are. So when you are brought up in an environment that's maybe public school with a little bit of you know, uh, church on Sunday two or three times a week, let's say, now you're being raised to kind of inherently believe that people are gracious and people are kind and people are, you know, suppo you're supposed to do things to help each other and you're supposed to work together and teamwork makes the dream work, right? And you're conditioned to believe that stuff. Well, all it takes is a child that's raised somewhere differently. Maybe not, and maybe not in a public school, but in a private school. This is a fantastic uh, example when you consider uh, public school students versus private school students for the very wealthy. Have you ever wondered why it is that the children of the very wealthy have a higher success rate in terms of long-term success than the children of the not-so-wealthy? It's because the children of the wealthy go to school where wealthy, where wealthy people send their kids. Mm -hmm. They grow up around wealthy kids who are also raised by wealthy parents who are surrounded by wealth. Yeah. Exactly. So they learn very early on. you got to pick who you choose. There's a whole group of people that are worse than you. They're poorer than you. They're needier than you. They're not going to have the opportunities you have. But they're also raised with that idea that you have a responsibility. You have to take care of the wealth that your mother and I have made. You have to take care of the family name that your father and your grandfather and your grandfather and grandfather before him built. Right? So they're, they're still messed up in their own way. But they're, they're conditioned differently. They and still you, need that pack, but they're conditioned differently. You're saying, like, you've obviously seen this because you didn't grow up that way. No, I Not grew up. I was the poor kid that grew up in a rural part of Pennsylvania that believed we were all going to come together and do the right thing because it was the right thing. Oh, you did believe that. I did believe that, yeah. That's, that's how I grew up. And I believe that. That's what took me into the military. And then when the military was disappointing to me, all those times where I did the right thing, but it still was somehow the wrong thing to do, right? Do you have an example of that? Yeah, so I went to the Air Force Academy, yeah. and uh, I, I was a, 
um, there's two ways to get to the Air Force. There's two ways to get into a military academy. The first way is you meet all the requirements right out of high school, and you go right into your freshman year. The other way is you miss some of those requirements, but you still are a good candidate, so they send you to something called the military prep school, which is a one-year preparatory school so that you can get yourself up to those requirements before you go into the mainstream academy. So I went to the Air Force Academy prep school Mm -hmm. because I did not have all the requirements I needed when I graduated high school. So during that year, um, I took it very seriously because I was like, this is my chance, my chance to like go to a great school and get out of Pennsylvania and all this other stuff. I did my best with my grades. I did my, my best to keep myself military disciplined and physically active and all the stuff that I had to do. And I was doing great. I made it to the place where by the end of my time at the prep school, I was the second in command of the prep school because it's student led. Mm. Right. So of the whatever it was, 400 students there, I was uh, second in command of all of them. And then finals week came. And during finals week, I walked into my dorm room. I was doing a bunch of stuff that I had to do as the second in command of the school, administrative stuff. And I walk into my dorm room and I see my roommate is drinking underage with like three or four other friends in the dorm room at the prep school on a military base during finals week. What do you think is the military school's policy on underage drinking in the dorm room? I'm going to say you're not allowed to do that. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. So we are all told, we're told, and we're trained, and everything you read and everything you sign. So as soon as you see it... Did you narc on him? That's exactly what I did. Guess what? It was the right thing that got me in all kinds of trouble. Oh, it got you in trouble? Got me in tons of trouble. For narcing on him? Yep, because I went... Serves you right. (laughs) So this is... No, dude, you're fucking with me, but it's laughable to you. Yeah. Because you were not conditioned like I was conditioned. Right. To me, this was a clear cut, simple thing. They're drinking underage in the dorm room. Everything that I've been trained at in the, the year before this event happened, because remember, I've been in the military academy for a year now. Right. Plus getting through high school and everything else, my, my church background, blah, 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 all that stuff together. I was like, oh, this is very clearly they are making a bad decision because of whatever reason. Right. But my obligation, my moral obligation here is to turn them in. So I did exactly what my moral obligation told me to do. I went, I I pulled my roommate out first, right? Hey, can I talk to you for a second in the hallway? In the hallway. Hey, you're breaking the rules. This is something we can't do. I'm, I'm the number two cadet in charge of the entire school right now, right? I don't really want to have to turn you in. What I would much prefer is if you can't close this party down, get rid of the liquor, and then go tell... Go tell, like, the officer in command that weekend. Just go tell them what happened. You, you self-report, then, there's, then we're good to go. I've done my obligation because I've told you to self-report. You've done your obligation because you have self-reported, and nobody else in the room gets in trouble because you self-reported, right? You know what my roommate said to that? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> what are you going to do? You gonna, you're going you're gonna to narc on us? Mm-hmm. You're going to turn us in? I was like, dude, I don't want to, but this is what I have to do. So, and then, so as if that wasn't awkward enough to find them, and then that wasn't awkward enough to have that conversation get shot down by my roommate, then I go talk to the fucking officer in charge. And when I sit in the room with the officer in charge, I'm like, hey, this is what I just saw. That dude looks at me and he's like, you're turning in your roommate? And I'm like, what What do you mean? Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. He's like, dude, haven't you ever heard of like loyalty and cooperate to graduate? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of all those things, but 
Like, this is what you guys told us to do. And he's like, well, now that you've reported it to me, I have to do something with it, right? Again, making it my fault. Now that you've told me, I have to do something with this. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, you can go back to your roommate and you can tell him to self-report. And if he self-reports, then, you know, he gets to stay, you get to stay, but everybody who was drinking with him and didn't self-report has to leave. Like finals week, they're gone. He's like, or if he doesn't self-report, he leaves, but his but the people that he covers for stays. And I'm like, this is bullshit. Mm. Go back to my roommate. I lay it out for him. He says the same thing. He's like, fuck you, Andy. This is bullshit. And I'm like, well, I've done everything I can do. I am very confused right now by a zero tolerance policy that clearly has tolerance and that somehow I'm the villain in all this, but I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. So the way that that ended, he never turned himself in. <clears throat> he got kicked out of the Air Force Academy prep school the week of finals. The five or six other people drinking with him were never turned in. They graduated. They went on to then continue at the Air Force Academy. I have no idea what happened to him. And, uh, and I kind of carried that, uh, that scarlet letter for the entire four years I was at the Air Force Academy. Everybody knew me as the guy that turned in my roommate. And of course, I had six other guys who were more than happy to share that story with everybody about how I turned in my roommate. So that's some bullshit, dude. And uh, that's what I'm talking about. We don't actually know how shit works. People lie to us. We believe it. And we shouldn't. Do you think that, like, what, I've, I've never really talked with you in depth about your childhood or, or anything, but that's something I talk with a lot of guests about because, as you laid out a few minutes ago, people's environments determine who they are, and they, they shape them. And there's people who can kind of be an outlier from environments, for sure, but more often than not, surroundings equal where you end up. And you obviously... And we know where you ended up and you got yourself in these situations where you became a successful guy in, in the government and worked in some pretty wild places. But, you know, to get to that point where you're just in prep school at this point, you're on the right path. But like you already had something in you that matches what I see today in the sense that like you're a very analytical guy, extremely analytical. And when I was listening to you tell that story, I'm not sure how Alessi here felt hearing it, but all I could think about was you were looking at this situation as a zero or a one. So the rule says this, therefore that is how we have to proceed, like very military kind of based. And yet you started off that whole story by saying that part of what molded you to realize that people suck and, and you're insinuating here, correct me if I'm wrong, like you don't necessarily follow some rules is the fact that when I did it, I was told to go fuck myself. That's very, I'm saying a lot right now, but like between your analytical nature that has remained with you through all this and then your attitude of kind of like, you know what, throw up the middle fingers, fuck the police, let's go do my goddamn thing, you know, something there to me doesn't line up. And I would think that it has to do with things that occurred in your childhood. This is what you're, what's happening is exactly what we talked about with Peter Zihan's 10 to 15 year theory. Right. There's a cone of uncertainty. And that's you're you're admitting that there's this uncertainty that you don't understand. Yeah. And you're wondering where it's coming from. It's pretty simple. Right. I was conditioned to believe that if I did what I was told and I met the expectation, I would have success. That's how my mom raised me. That's how my dad raised me. That's how the public school system raised me. That's how I got accepted to the Air Force Academy prep school. That's how I got to the second in command of the school by meeting the expectation that was set in front of me. 
And then at this scenario, the expectation was actually not the same as what was set. Do you want to know what goes through someone's brain whenever they decide to make a decision? They go, like when someone is following a rule, there's a certain process that their brain is going through. First, there's the rule. They understand that there's the rule. They understand the rule clearly. There's no questions about the rule. But then they also think the rule came from somewhere. And the rule did not come arbitrarily. Somebody thought of the rule. Some other people sat around and discussed the rule. Multiple people all agreed that this needs to be the rule. Perhaps even somebody else didn't follow the rule and something bad happened, and therefore this rule is now codified in a rule book. Right? That's what that's when people follow rules, that's what they believe. What I'm saying is that that experience taught me that that's not how it works. That there are some rules that are put in place just because people are too fucking batshit like cowardly to stand up and change the rule. That maybe instead of a zero tolerance policy, it would have taken just some colonel or some captain or even a panel of colonels or captains to stand up to the general and say, you know what, general, maybe we should make it so that everybody's allowed to get caught drinking once. But those fucking pussy captains and colonels never said what they really thought. So that's why when I went to a captain and followed the rule, he was like, you're the asshole. And now because of your decision to follow the rules, you put me in this awkward predicament because now I have to explain to my colonels above me why I have to do all this bullshit and this is going to make a big stink on the record. Like, we, we are fundamentally, this is what the agency showed me, this is what the experience that I had when I when I uh, turned in my roommate, not realizing that it was the wrong thing. The experience there was it planted a seed, and that seed suggested to me that maybe all this time that I've thought that authority really is fake, maybe it really is. And then I went on to have an Air Force Academy career, and I was a horrible, horrible cadet. Mm. I went from being a near 4.0 student at the prep school to barely graduating the Air Force Academy. Yeah. Right? I was a bullshit because all I did was spend four years hiding from that scarlet letter that I took with me from the Air Force Academy prep school. Everybody knew who I was. Basic training was miserable. My freshman year was miserable. It wasn't until I was a junior, three years into the Air Force Academy, that all the upperclassmen had finally left who knew the story about who I was. And by then, all I wanted to do was just not even be noticed. That I, I did everything I could to just not even be noticed. Did you have a lot of friends eventually there? None. I've never had a lot of friends in my life, man. It's because I don't trust people. And I most certainly don't trust people after what the agency taught me about how people work. When you say they taught you, are you talking about on the job or before you even did it? Uh, both. So when you go through um, the agency's training school, right, when you go through the farm... Yeah. The official term for the farm is FTC, Field Tradecraft Course. When you go through FTC, you learn about how the human mind works, how psyche works. And then you learn how that psyche works through the lens of culture. Because your your brain and my brain are the same brain. Mm -hmm. Same pink matter, same biological matter. Um, Our cultures are very similar. But if we were to be sitting next to two guys from China and two guys from Brazil, completely different cultures, same biological brain right? For the most part. Mm-hmm. So we have to learn how, psych- how human brains, how they psychologically work through the lens of culture. That's all the stuff that you learn at FTC. So you learn it there, and then you go out in the field, and you actually practice what you learned, and then you refine it into something that's much more nuanced than just the academic study of how brains work. 
So if you didn't, if you already had this predisposition though before knowing any of that, and you went out into the field, the thing that doesn't, well, maybe it should equate to me, but the thing that doesn't equate to me right away is it sounds like you had more of an attitude of, you know what, fuck everybody, right? And so now just me translating this to you being a spy, part of being a spy is you got to go out there and you got to at least fake it. Yeah. You, you got to make friends with people. Like, did you... Your assumptions are wrong. The, your your reasoning path here is wrong, Okay. right? The seed that was planted to me is that authority isn't real, right? So let's go back to 19-year-old me, right? What happened is I lived in this world where I thought military discipline was accurate and authority was real. And, like, you had to respect authority. Well, now there's a chink in the armor that just plants a seed. That doesn't make me think, fuck people. That makes me think, maybe not everything I'm reading is true. Maybe not every person who's in a position of authority is someone I can trust. That started when I was, well, probably started when I was much younger. But it was certainly codified. It became, like, a, a core part of how I was conditioned starting at about 19. So then I was a shitbird cadet. Like, I was a bad student for four years because I put myself in the back row. I put myself in the back of the bus. Why do we like to sit in the back of the bus? Because you can see everything in front of you. So I became an observer for those four years. Let me see how other people do this. Here are the people who do really well at the academy. Here are the people who barely make it through the academy. Here are the people that get laid at the academy. Here are the people who do drugs and don't get caught at the academy. Like, I see it, and I can learn from it, and I can observe it. And I can see more kinks in the armor. Because now I'm looking for kinks. Before, I thought the armor was sound. Now I'm actually looking for the places where things don't line up. Oh, how is it that these people can cheat? Even though it says right there that we don't accept cheaters. Oh, how is it that these people... How did this person get in just because his dad's a senator, but he's struggling to keep his grades up? Maybe his dad being a senator is why he's here at all. <laughs> Maybe it's Wonder not... gave that one away. Right? Like, you start to put this stuff together. I know it's comical to you because, yeah. like, you never question. For you, this all makes sense. Yes. For me, I had to learn it. That's interesting. Right? I had to learn it. And then when I finally learned, like, shit doesn't work according to the rules, then I get to CIA, and guess what the first lesson is at CIA? We're going to teach you how to live outside the rules. And I was like, oh, that makes that's so encouraging to me because I've been watching people live outside the rules. And I've been wondering how they do that and how they do it and succeed because it's not hard to find people who don't live outside the rules it's hard to find people who don't live it's hard to find people who live outside the rules and succeed you can find them living outside the rules and failing all day long you can find broke people who smoke weed and who do drugs you can find poor people who you know fail people who failed out of whatever because they couldn't keep their shit straight and lied to their wife or who knows whatever else but it's hard to find the super successful person who lied to their wife the super successful person who does drugs. It's a much harder person to find. Before they even tell you that, though, at the CIA, like, we're going to teach you how to break the rules, though, you have to accept the idea to, like, go visit it. It sounds to me like if I had the attitude that you do, the last thing I would want to do is go join up with another arm of the government where it's all about the same things you dealt with, authority, because at the CIA, there's layers to it just like everything else. The order comes down from an order, comes down from an order, go do this. So what, why, did you even, why did you even open yourself up to it at that point? Because in the military, in the military, the authority is granted by rank. At the agency, the authority is granted by success. 
So yes, there's layers of authority, but the difference is in like, if I deploy with the military, I deploy with a squadron of people mm-hmm. who are part of a wing of people who are part of a group of people who are part of a, like uh, a detachment of people. And there's commanders at every level. So I actually need, like, if I'm doing X, Y, th- X, Y, Z, I have somebody supervising my every step of X, Y, Z. When I'm with the agency and I go to execute a mission in the field, nobody goes with me. I have a supervisor who's supervising the end result of the mission from somewhere else, usually from Langley, Virginia. Mm-hmm. I do whatever I got to do. And I either bring back, like, the bacon or I don't. And then, did you know that? Before you, you didn't know that before. You no, know, I didn't know that before. But what I knew before is that I wanted to get out of the military, and CIA was the best. So go to the CIA. Offer on the table. It was the best offer on the table. I was trying to go into the Peace Corps. Yeah, yeah, we talked yeah. about that. That's just I don't know. That's very fascinating to me. But then you go in, and now you do get to be. It makes sense. Like you get to take your four years of observational learning, add that to the education they give you at CIA, and then put that out into the field and cultivate assets i just you get to use people dude yeah you get to you get to not be you get to stop being the person that's being lied to and you get to start being the person that lies to others you Mm. get to stop being the person who is being disappointed by the rules and you get to start being the person who lives outside the rules even if even if somebody's listening to this right now and hating everything i say i guarantee you that son of a bitch wants to live outside the rules and succeed while doing it that's the secret we all actually want that we never admit out loud. We don't want the rules to apply to us. And we especially don't want to have the rules apply to us and gain success, financial success, uh, relationship success, career success. If we could have success and not follow the rules, there isn't a single one of us who would say no to that. I don't care if they go to church every Sunday. I don't care if they wear a robe and a fucking white collar. Right? We all want to live outside the rules. It's the way we are wired. We oftentimes appreciate, we invite the rules in because we feel so bad about how we want to live outside the rules. So we subject ourselves to rules. We give ourselves boundaries. We create limits. And they're like a comfort blanket where we're like, oh, now, now I know how to prevent myself from becoming an evil, horrible person. I'll just follow the rules. And so you don't do that then in your career and now like because it seems like you live being outside the cia you you live with a very similar attitude like you're an entrepreneur you work for yourself you go make your deals you want to make you don't assume people are going to hold up on their end of the offer on a lot of things and it, it probably serves you you really well i just like your psychology fascinates me so much because we've done so much on camera and off camera, just talking with you and hearing where you come from, it, it, I, I kind of nerd out on it because I believe that these places, when I've talked with people like you, when I've talked with people like Joe Teddy, talked even with Sean Ryan and, and, and guys or Jim DiOrio, guys who have been high up in, in various agencies or, or placed in the government, you know, I do tend to think that like when these guys go to talk to you, like when you got that first message you had talked about on our first podcast together that the CIA said, oh, stop your Peace Corps application, they already knew who you were. You know, there's no reason why the most important intelligence arm of of a government should not like have an idea like who they're going to recruit. And so to me, like it it was obviously because you were also right in their backyard, you're working in the military this time, like in the Air Force, but like you were for some reason 
such a prime candidate. And I think I think what made you a prime candidate is that you got weathered mm -hmm. to get there. You weren't born wired with all these things. You were probably born analytical. That is probably some sort of trait you always had. But a lot of these psychological beliefs about other people, about, you know, how you would handle hypothetical situations as well. Like you're what it what seems very clear on all the on all these examples and explanations you're giving about, you know, what what happened to you over the years. It seems like the answers you gave at 17 minus just breaking rules, minus that. I'm looking at all the other stuff right now are diametrically opposed to the mm -hmm. answers you would have given at 31. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And and I think that that happens to all of us. There's a there's the world that we're conditioned by. Mm -hmm. And then there's the world that we test our conditions against. And then there's the world that we build for ourselves afterwards. Now, where I think a lot of people struggle is that the world that they're conditioned in never really gets tested because they don't grow much, right? They're, uh, take my hometown, Enola, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of people who go to high school in Enola, Pennsylvania, and then they graduate high school in Enola, Pennsylvania. And then maybe they go to a local school in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right? 30 miles away. That's not really a good test bed no. to test all of your original conditioning. No. So then they go to school there and maybe they get a job there. And when, and when they get a job, when they're working age, 22, 23, 24 years old, and they get their professional job out of college, maybe they stay in Enola, Pennsylvania, or they go to Mechanicsburg, or they go to Camp Hill, or they go, you know, wherever. They go somewhere else, also within about a 30-mile distance. You're not challenging the conditions that you were raised in. And now you're to the place where you're actually, like, you're creating your own life. So you're just building the same life that you were conditioned in, which is why parents do to their kids the same thing that their parents did to them, even though they hated it when their parents did that to them as kids because they never learn a different way, right? To really test the conditions that you were raised in, you've got to go to a very foreign environment. I'm not saying you have to go to Vietnam. Sure. But, yeah, get out of Harrisburg, go to Chicago. Yeah. How does your conditioning hold up there? Go to Dallas. How does your conditioning hold up there? So one of the things that's great about the military is the military takes us from all different backgrounds, and then what do they do? Recondition us to be these military soldiers. But if we go to a different place, let's give two examples. We, we go to a different place in America. America's way different across the board because it's a free place, right? There's all different cultures, ideas. People can say what they want, do what they want, hang out with who they want. Then it's self-explanatory. We go to another country, whether it's dictatorial or not. It's just a different environment, right. totally different foreign place. But a lot of these places where you were that you've seen around the world, countries, what it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that I'll use an example even. If I'm from Pakistan, yes, there are different, obviously a lot of different tribes. There's different small cultural norms, but the overall attitude and type of person is a lot more similar than it would be across the spectrum, say, in, like, America. So when you go to these, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of this, when, when you go to some of these other places and, and when you, I should say, when you went there with the CIA, you're getting your own experience because you are putting yourself in a whole new environment and learning about these customs you talked about with other people. But did you notice that a lot of people were molded by their environments in these foreign countries and remained in that environment, even if they traveled 200 miles away and lived somewhere new because the environment was so similar and, and kept those same attitudes. Therefore, we have like these 
quote unquote, like you talked about in the last podcast we did or two podcasts ago, collegiate culture, where it's like this is ingrained, this is what it is. Whether you're in this part or that part, like this is what they think. Whereas in America, we're always changing. You know, you drive 20 miles and some things can even change. Yeah, we're not. You're not. We're not changing as much as you might think. We're changing, right? That's that's what's the first thing to keep in mind. Um, so yes, to a certain extent, you find that no matter where you go there are people who remain fairly homogeneous to their original conditioning. What's, what we care about at CIA, though, is usually we care about decision makers. We're looking for senior people in the government. We're looking for senior people in the military, senior people yes. in business and enterprise. Whenever you get to people who are that successful, they've gone through the full life cycle already. They had their conditioning, they challenged it against the outside world, and then they built a life for themselves. Mm. That doesn't mean that they're like open minds. It just means that they have created a third set of conditions that they follow instead of following the conditions that they were originally given. So what we learn to do at the agency is we learn how to hack into the minds of intelligent, successful people. Because intelligent, successful people are some of the most vulnerable people, vulnerable people in the world because they don't think they have vulnerabilities anymore. Ignorant masses who don't really have access to secrets, who don't really have influence, don't really have power, don't really have money, those are people who are paranoid of everything, right? They think someone's trying to steal their privacy and someone's trying to steal their guns and someone's trying to, like, steal their wife, right? They're paranoid of everything because they don't have much, so what they do have, they're terrified of losing. Mm. But when you get to people who have power, influence, and money, oftentimes they're kind of asleep at the wheel. They don't realize how much they have because they're also tied up in very human issues uh, fighting with their daughter or their son doesn't want to be their son anymore or their wife might be cheating on them or they might be cheating on their wife the company might be going through a hostile takeover and they're not even thinking about their family anymore like those successful people in business and and in in government uh, political work are some of the most vulnerable people out there so we learn how to think like they think how to read the conditions that they've built for themselves and then how to appear like we believe the same context that they believe. Because the people that you trust the most are the people who you see and meet who are the most like you. You naturally trust people who what we call mirror you. They mirror your values. They mirror your life experiences. They even mirror your behavior. So that, that's all. Mirroring is something you can teach someone to do. Yes. Right? So that's... That's what the agency does. That's what espionage is all about. It's not about trying to fit to the conditions of ignorant people. It's about trying to mimic that you believe the conditions of very successful people. That's what makes it such a gentleman's game. When you go in to talk with these people to turn them into an asset, though, which is obviously a huge part of what case officers do, there seems to be two ways that that happens listening to you listening to jim lawler some other guys on the internet who talk about this you either a do all the things you just said to develop trust and then find a, a that vulnerability thing that makes them feel like you know what this guy's got my back i will work with mm -hmm. him right and it in a way manipulatively inspires them to work with you there's that category then the other category is you find their you find their weak spot. You find not the vulnerability I was just talking about. That's a weak spot. But I'm saying like their weak spot, like you get information that other people can't know. And you got to make them 
in, into an asset. What does that conversation look like? I mean, we've taught, we've already covered, people can listen to you yeah, yeah, yeah. on other podcasts, talk about how catching people with pattern of life and stuff like that. We, we don't need to go down all that again, but like you're going after somebody, some high level guy that you need to make into an asset for the CIA. This is like a direct mission. Like Andy, we need this guy. And you find out that, you know, he has this vulnerability, whatever it is. And you got him. Is it like in the movies where you walk up and you're sitting at the bar and then suddenly you're like, you know, we know about that, right? <laughs> or is it much more like friendly and, and calm and like not necessarily saying the obvious, but getting the point across? It's no, it's very much about saying the obvious. So what you're talking about there is the difference between what we call a warm approach and a cold approach. A warm approach is a relational approach. You find their vulnerability, you make everybody feel like they're friends, and you make everybody feel like they're warm and cozy, and you do all the mirroring stuff I talked about. All the stuff you don't want to talk about, that's all warm approach. What you're getting at right now is what's known as a cold approach. And a cold approach is usually very heavily centered on some uh, on a motivation that we know is coercive in nature. And I think I've told you about the four different motivators in the past, right? One of the four motivators is coercion. I know you're in debt. I know you're cheating on your wife. I know your son's dying of a rare form of cancer. I know that whatever, right? I, I know that the mob is out to kill you and whatever else. I have some piece of information that you have that you don't, that you don't share with anybody. Right. You've probably also heard me talk about our three lives, public life, secret life, and private life. I have some piece of information from your secret life that you don't share with anybody. And now I'm coming up to you and I'm very, I'm, I'm still being cordial when I step into the bar and I say, hi, Julian, how are you today? And you look at me and you're like, I'm fine. Have we met somewhere? And I was like, no, but I'm really glad that we had a chance to meet today because I understand that you're in a situation with your son right now and that you're having a hard time finding any place that will give him the medical attention that he needs. And I'm here to tell you I can solve that for you. I can have your son in front of a doctor that's going to give him life-saving medical care within the next six months. But what I need you to do for me is X, Y, Z. And most people are going to give me a look that's like, because they're frozen. And they're, in the hierarchy of how people respond to strangers, there's three phases. Okay. There's an avoidant phase, a competition phase, and then there's a, a phase where they comply. Avoidance, competition, compliance, right? Those are the three phases. Everybody starts from avoidance. So when, when you hit on a cute girl or when a cute girl says something nice to you, there's a reason that you stand there and you just go, because mm -hmm. you're in the avoidance phase. You're not engaging her. When you compliment a cute girl and she looks at you like you're crazy, she's in the avoidance phase too. She might actually think you're cute. She might actually like the compliment, but her natural human instinct has her in a position where she's not going to talk and she's not going to engage because the first phase is avoidance. So I'm expecting that when I tell this person, I can save your son's life. And I know that you've been trying to do that for the last six months and we're going to have it fixed within the, within the year. I'm expecting that person to look at me and be like, fuck you. Who are you? I don't know what you're talking about. Right. That's the avoidance phase. As we continue to push on that and I tell them, look, the life-saving care that we have is waiting for him in a specialty hospital in, Mar in Maryland, inside the United States. I can have all expenses paid and we can have your entire family there, you know, before the fall. Then I expect to go into a competition phase. Who are you? Where did you get this information? How do you know about my son? They might even get up and try to leave, right? They're showing me that they're actually curious about the information. Try to leave, but they don't get to leave. Right. How do you keep them there? 
like you don't have to keep them there. The information, the pitch, the coercion, that coercive element that you've, that you've put in there, you already know it's strong enough to get them to stay. What about the 10% of people where it's not, though? The 10% of situations where they walk out of there, and then they could just go, like, tell, like, yo, I just got approached by a CIA guy. That's true. You know what happens more, more often than not in that 10%? They come back to you. They come back to you. But in the meantime, do you have a guy that you need to make into an asset for the CIA? This is like a direct mission, like, Andy, we need this guy. And you find out that, you know, he has this vulnerability, whatever it is, and you got him. Is it like in the movies where you walk up and you're sitting at the bar and then suddenly you're like, you know, we know about that, right? <laughs> or is it much more like friendly and and calm and like not necessarily saying the obvious but getting the point across it's no it's very much about saying the obvious so what you're talking about there is the difference between what we call a warm approach and a cold approach a warm approach is a relational approach you find their vulnerability you make everybody feel like they're friends and you make everybody feel like they're warm and cozy and you do all the mirroring stuff i talked about all the stuff you don't want to talk about that's all warm approach what you're getting at right now is what's known as a cold approach and a cold approach is usually very heavily centered on some uh, on a motivation that we know is coercive in nature. And I think I've told you about the four different motivators in the past, right? One of the four motivators is coercion. I know you're in debt. I know you're cheating on your wife. I know your son's dying of a rare form of cancer. I know that whatever, right? I, I know that the mob is out to kill you and whatever else. I have some piece of information that you have that you don't that you don't share with anybody. Right. You've probably also heard me talk about our three lives, public life, secret life, and private life. I have some piece of information from your secret life that you don't share with anybody. And now I'm coming up to you and I'm very I'm I'm still being cordial when I step into the bar and I say, Hi Julian, how are you today? And you look at me and you're like, I'm fine. Have we met somewhere? And I was like, no, but I'm really glad that we had a chance to meet today because I understand that you're in a situation with your son right now and that you're having a hard time finding any place that will give him the medical attention that he needs. And I'm here to tell you I can solve that for you. I can have your son in front of a doctor that's going to give him life-saving medical care within the next six months. But what I need you to do for me is X, Y, Z. And most people are going to give me a look that's like, because they're frozen. And they're, in the hierarchy of how people respond to strangers, there's three phases. Okay. There's an avoidant phase, a competition phase, and then there's a phase where they comply. Avoidance, competition, compliance, right? Those are the three phases. Everybody starts from avoidance. So when, when you hit on a cute girl or when a cute girl says something nice to you, there's a reason that you stand there and you just go, because mm -hmm. you're in the avoidance phase. You're not engaging her. When you compliment a cute girl and she looks at you like you're crazy, She's in the avoidance phase too. She might actually think you're cute. She might actually like the compliment, but her natural human instinct has her in a position where she's not gonna talk and she's not gonna engage because the first phase is avoidance. So I'm expecting that when I tell this person, I can save your son's life, and I know that you've been trying to do that for the last six months, and we're gonna have it fixed within the, within the year, I'm expecting that person to look at me and be like, fuck you, who are you? I don't know what you're talking about, right? That's the avoidance phase. As we continue to push on that, and I tell them, look, the life-saving care that we have is waiting for him in a specialty hospital in, Mar in Maryland, inside the United States. I can have all expenses paid, and we can have your entire family there, you know, before the fall. Then I expect to go into a competition phase. Who are you? Where did you get this information? How do you know about my son? 
They might even get up and try to leave, right? They're showing me that they're actually curious about the information. Try to leave, but they don't get to leave. Right. How do you keep them there? Like, you don't have to keep them there. The information, the pitch, the coercion, that coercive element that you've, that you've put in there, you already know it's strong enough to get them to stay. What about the 10% of people where it's not, though? The 10% of situations where they walk out of there, and then they could just go, like, tell, like, yo, I just got approached by a CIA guy. That's true. You know what happens more, more often than not in that 10%? They come back to you. They come back to you. But in the meantime, do you have to get out of the country because the heat might be on you? No, because you're not nervous. You've got that person's... <laughs> when you're going to approach somebody coercively, you have them on lockdown. You're listening to their phone. You're watching their email address. You watch them walk into that location. You watch them when they leave that location. You're co you've got them pinned down. The reason you're taking this level of effort is because it's worth it. You don't put yourself at this much risk unless that person is so worthwhile that you're willing to bring in, not just you, but you and your team and your supervisors and everybody at Langley, they're all like, yes, this person is important enough that we're going to commit these kind of resources, right? Is there a chance that someone's going to go to their boss and be like, I just got approached by CIA? Of course there's a, there's a chance of that. But then what happens to them once they tell their boss that? Uh, well, if they're in the wrong country, that could go the wrong way. That could them. go the wrong way yeah. quickly. So now all of a sudden the boss is like, how did CIA know about you? How did they know about your son? Your vulnerability. Your vulnerability. Yeah. We need you out of this job. You just lost your this. You just lost your that. So they don't want to tell anybody about that. So what we're doing is we're putting them in a double coercive vice. There's our coercion where we're saying, we know you have a problem. We're your only option to fix it. And then if they do have the, usually it's not good sense. Usually it's some sort of panic reaction where they get up and they, they shuffle their stuff all together and they leave the bar. Ten minutes after they left, then they have the real oh shit moment where they're like, oh shit. Like, what do I do? I can't tell my boss. I, I can't tell my wife. I can't tell my son. I can't look at myself in the mirror. All I've got is hopefully the business card that we gave them right before they left. If you change your mind, call this number. This is where, like, I'm one of those cynics that thinks that anything I see in the movies, it's like, I, there's no way it's like that. I'll still ask the questions, yeah. you know, because it's like, well, there has to be some truth somewhere. But, like, you're talking about this from the situations, and I can see you, like, picturing some of these in your head, just, like, the way you're explaining it. Like, you're reliving some of them, which is pretty wild. But you're talking about these where you're the one going in there and, and telling them this stuff. But, you, you know, you're, you work with other case officers at CIA. I've heard you talk about being a support on mm -hmm. missions and things like that. You know, is it literally sometimes where, like, someone walks out of that meeting and then another guy, let's say it's another case agent in there with him, and another guy like you shows up at his house and says, oh, it's a nice dog he got there. And, walk, like, does that your mind? <laughs> no, 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 no question. Just, like, that's, that's a cute dog. And then walk away, like, that kind of thing, like, that type of intimidation. No. There's no reason to intimidate. So... So you've got to think about all this stuff through a lens of operational security also, right? Because we're trying to protect the officer. Your average CIA officer has sure. gone through about $2.5 million worth in training. But they're still just a fleshy sack, right? A, a bullet, a knife, a car, a bat is going to do real damage to your $2.5 million human asset, yes. right? So we're always judging things through a lens of operational security. So when... When we, know that we're, when we know there's a target sitting in a bar and we know that we know more about the target than they know about us, that's a scenario that we call information superiority. So we can walk in there 
and we can launch a surprise attack and basically pitch them on a cold approach to solve their biggest problem. And we can anticipate that they're either going to have a conversation with us right there, or they're not going to have a conversation, they're just going to leave, right? We also know roughly 75% of the time they're going to stay. 25% of the time they're going to leave. So we know that we have to give them a, a, a card with a phone number or something so that if it's 25% of the time when they leave, when they have the oh shit moment 10 minutes later, they have a number they can call. We also know that we should sit at the bar for 30 minutes. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. But once that 30 minutes is over and they've left and they haven't come back and the surveillance team outside has called in and been like, hey, that dude went straight to the police department. Or the surveillance team outside is like, hey, that dude called his wife right away and told her the whole story right away. Now we're like, oh, okay, that, that was a wash. So now we should take some back off, you know, uh, uh, we should plan for for uh, blowback. Yeah, get you out or something. If, if it gets to that, yeah. If there's like a police report or something like that, or if we might look at getting somebody off the X. Is there retribution for people that do that? Is there retribution? Their son now dies? Well, their son... Do you guys make sure of it? No. <laughs> there's no benefit there. Ah, <laughs> There's no benefit. Sorry. Because the benefit... Dude, the benefit is that that dude sits there... And watches his son. I mean, this is going to make me sound like a horrible person, but this is what life looks like outside of the rules. Yes. Every day, that guy faces his son. Every day, he watches his son disintegrate more and more. And every day, he knew. He knows he had the chance to fix it. And he didn't fix it. And that, that is where the coercive part of this sets in. Because after doing that for 10, 15, 30 days, 60 days, 2 years, he's still going to keep that card. And when the day comes that he picks up that card... And he makes a phone call to that number, and he says, hey, I had somebody talk to me about helping my son. Can I have that conversation again? Someone's going to say yes, right? That's what it's all about. If we're going to take the step, if we're going to put the effort into the cold approach at all, then you're going to have the effort to take the follow-up. Like it's, it's worth it. The risk is worth it because that person is so special. What happens in Hollywood, dude, is that out of 100% of cases, we'll cold approach maybe 5%. 95 percent work i believe that yeah 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 but you know what hollywood doesn't like the 95 percent because then it just it's too boring like oh you become besties and you go out to dinner and then you start talking about families and then you start doing this and you start doing that and that's not sexy i don't think that's boring well a lot of times in hollywood it's hard to develop that story accurately so it's way more it's way more entertaining when the guy walks into a smoky bar and he drops a suitcase of cash and he pulls a gun up underneath the table and he says hey you're going to talk to me you're not going to leave that just sounds more entertaining and exciting. But then it's quick and it's over and it's one thing. I actually think you're onto something here. I think it's more entertaining like when you have someone where you think they're that guy like if you're if you're the viewer watching it, I'm just thinking about this and like you're watching two people become friends you have no idea one of them is like a spy and then suddenly like the day comes in where it's like oh sorry I'm a spy. <laughs> That's good TV right there and it actually draws it out so may maybe it's actually backwards. Guys this next episode I'm going to be putting out is with my friend Ron James who is the director of the recent award winning UFO documentary Accidental Truth. So before we put out this podcast I am putting the links to this documentary that you can rent or buy on Apple or Amazon down in the description below whether you're on youtube or spotify right now you'll see it right there i would recommend you watch it before the podcast just so you'll have all the context and i promise you we did a very 
very in-depth breakdown of everything within the documentary and even some things outside of it. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I hope you enjoy the documentary because it has a who's who of the UFO field over the past decade and more, but in particularly the last decade. And there is a lot of great information in there. So great documentary. And I hope you guys are going to enjoy the podcast as well. See you next week. But like you would also talk with me a bunch about the I don't know what the official term is, but like the way you guys did operations, like the way you were assigned to operations and, and what you had said was you would have a main location, wherever location X is, and then you would get sent to other places. So it's like you have a home base, you do whatever espionage and spy shit work you do there. And then you get a call or a Morse code or however you people talk to each other and you get on a flight or a bus or whatever and you go to some other country. The way you were describing some of those stories about bringing in people from the cold or something like that or, or turning someone a spy, you talk about, oh, we already have all their stuff tapped. We have surveillance teams on the road, all that. It seemed like, though, and maybe I'm just thinking of this the wrong way, but it seemed like in the past when you talked about all the different places you were getting sent to, sometimes very extremely dangerous places, like countries where they don't even let Americans in mm. there, it, how would we even have teams everywhere? Like, how many other spies are like you? Did, and every single person has a team automatically on the spot? So keep in mind that we're talking, we're, we're mixing and matching two different kinds of operations. If we're going to do a cold approach then we're going to have tons of resources available to us. That was what I was saying. A cold approach, you're going to have tons of resources. That's only 5% of all approaches. In the other 95% of approaches, you don't need the whole team because you have the relationship and you have all the time on target and you have all the benefits and you've been working with the person for like nine months, right? When, you, when the first time you meet somebody is the time that you tell them that you want secrets, that's a yeah. cold approach. Yeah, yeah. So it's two different things. So you weren't doing both when you'd get sent places? You can do both. Yeah, you can do both when you're sent places too. So here's how it works. Uh, they're usually high-value targets, so HVTs. HVT lives in some country in Europe, all right? That's where that HVT lives. That's where HVT does their business. There are teams of people who live in Europe, or there are teams of people that are sent to Europe to observe HVT. They... The surveillance teams surveil him, you know, drones or satellites or UAVs surveil him, cell phones are tapped, collected by NSA, whatever else. Teams of people already assigned to HVT, but nobody's assigned to approach HVT. They're just assigned to observe HVT. So then, third country, some case officer is contacted and says, hey, we need you to run a cold approach to an HVT in their home country. So then that person gets on a plane and comes here gets a full brief on HVT from the teams that have been observing HVT for the last six months and then plans their approach and does the approach. That's why even if HVT does go to the local police and is like, hey, it was approached by a, a shady person who says his name was Julian Dory. When the police go to look up Julian Dory, there is no Julian Dory. Was, that was just a name that was given to the guy, given right. to the HVT in the meeting. Sure. The actual officer's name was something else, Alex Rodriguez. And Alex Rodriguez is the passport that takes him back to his home country, right? So there's no emergency evac. There's no nothing. This person has now met somebody named Julian who he'll never see again. And he's got to decide whether or not he trusts his life and his family's life to Julian or whether he's going to take matters into his own hands. And then when he goes to try to turn in Julian to his boss, who he tells the whole story to, he's essentially imploding his own life, further 
making him even more vulnerable to when Julian finds him again in the next location where his boss sends him because he can't stay here. So I have questions popping into my head that I think are, some of them are on the line of like classified, unclassified, so just shoot down what, what you can if, if we come up on something like that, I'm just warning you. But like when you get sent to these countries, you had talked in the past about your wife was the targeter and you were the operator. So is it like literally a 50-50 type deal when, when CIA hires case officers, half of them are targeters, half of them are operators, and then the operators are the ones like you who are just called upon when they got to go somewhere all the time? No, it's not 50-50 at all. It's, it's actually more like 90-10. Most of the people that CIA hires are operators. Got it. Very, very few are support because one support person can basically create enough mm. targets for 10 or 15 operators, right? So... Uh, and you'll hear me say it. If you haven't heard me say it before, then it's, it's, I'm, I've been remiss not to mention it. But my wife was a superstar at CIA. Very well regarded, very re well respected, very successful in her career field. What made her great? She was able to take disparate information, incomplete information, and turn it into a meaningful targeting package with, an, with a target that actually had real impact and real, uh, real asset value. So she was able to do those for multiple people. I was just one of the beneficiaries. Can you explain, like, a broad example of, like, how that would go down? So your wife gets, I'll help you with the beginning. Your wife gets information from Langley or something that says you're in country X. Let me just put a name on the country. You're in Russia. All right, you're undercover. We need to get to this general in their military. Go. Is her skill then finding everything on him? before the operator goes to make a full profile? Or what, like what, can you define what it is she does that makes her that targeter genius? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, the example that you gave, there's actually two, there's kind of two approaches to the same thing. So uh, you were saying there's a general in Russia that they want to get access to, go. That's not, yes, that is a type of tasking that a targeter can get. And when a targeter gets a tasking like that, they'll go through their own classified training systems to know how to essentially reverse engineer that general's life, right? Because that general, if you think about it, is a human being. And what do we know about human beings? A lot of times they're married. Sometimes they have kids. They've got grocery stores, gyms, drivers. They've got vehicles, cell phones, computers. There's shows they like to watch. They live in an address. There's all sorts of stuff you can... You can immediately start to research these different elements of any one person, whether they're a Russian general or whether they're, you know, the guy next door. So a, a good targeter knows how to break that information out and then independently research each of those different uh, arms, those tentacles, and then look for ways to cross-reference so that our case officer can meet that general at a gym, at the general's gym even better, because that fits the general's normal pattern of life. But the second way to do it is that you can break down that general's entire life and then start to break down the people whose lives intersect with that general's lives, right? So now the general has a child that goes to a school and that child is best friends with Gus and Gus has a mom and dad who do this other thing. So let's get a case officer to talk to Gus's mom and dad. So your wife was good at finding these... Those kind of connections. Got it. But where she really got to be super powerful, the reason that she had the reputation she had was because Langley would tell her, we need you to find this general. Well, she would find a way to approach that general, but then she would also find three or four other people mm. who had the same kind of access that that general had, 
and possibly an easier way to get to them. And she's never the person going out and doing it. She's just planning it. Because she, very different than me, she's an introvert, right? She doesn't like to be in front of people. She likes to be in a small, confined cubicle, working for long hours, being left alone until she has her eureka moment. And she's like, I found it, mm. right? The missing link that connects this whole thing together. For me, I can't, I would fall asleep. <laughs> you put me in a cubicle that's warm and cozy and you tell me, come back when you have a eureka moment, like, I'm going to fall asleep. I'm not going to have a eureka moment. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, you need action. Yeah, sure. I need to be doing something. Exactly right. She's the person who finds something to do. But you also, this entire time, and this applies to your wife too, but I'm just thinking from the operator's perspective more because you're in the middle of the field all the time. You don't have diplomatic immunity or anything when you're doing this. You're deniable. You're this spy in the middle of these dangerous places. So you talked about a while ago, one of the very first things they teach you is we teach you how to break all the rules here. Of course, my mind goes to, well, we're breaking the rules of all other countries because it's illegal to spy on other countries. That's an obvious one. But it sounds like it, it's a lot more than that, and I would imagine it's a lot more than that. So, you know, do you, outside of just, like, cultivating people that you're turning into spies, how often were you running into, let's say, life-and-death situations where you had to make decisions and get full autonomy and do whatever you had to do, including, you know, Goodbye. When you're when you're doing espionage right, life and death situations don't happen often. So when you're undercover and you're undercover correctly, right, you've got the proper backstopping, you're doing a good job protecting your cover, you're living within your cover. When you're doing all of that right, nobody thinks that you're anything other than who you say you are. So the life or death situation never finds its way to you. This is what the Bond movies do all wrong. Right? Everywhere James Bond goes, he ends up driving fast cars and shooting out of windows and whatever else. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That means he's actually a bad spy. Because a good spy gets in, does whatever they need to do, and gets out, and nobody even knows they were there. So for the vast majority of my career, life or death situations never really happened. I can count maybe two. And even with those two, I really don't I really can't say that the situation I was in was a life or death situation. It was just hairy and had the potential to escalate to possible life or death. But I had the training, and I had the experience, and I had a plan for how to extricate myself from the situation before it got really hairy, before it got so dangerous that it would meet that life or death scenario. Well, actually, before I ask this next question then, did you change your name before the CIA or after CIA? At CIA. At CIA. So like mid-career type Correct. Two. So, th all right, then that's my question. Was that because of the things you've talked about in the past where you're like, there's countries I can never go back to again? No, I, so I changed my name, and the way I changed my name was fully legal, right? So I actually took my my wife's family name. My So the Bustamante name is my wife's birth name. So when I changed my name, what I did is I took my wife's name. And I took my wife's name for a few different reasons. One, because it buried me deeper because it's just, it's not something that people do in the West, in, especially not in the United States. Men don't take women's last right. names. Yeah. So there was an element there where, uh, where Andrew Gregg went into CIA, but Andrew Gregg never came out of CIA, right? Nobody knows where Andrew Gregg really went administratively, unless they follow birth records and then they follow. Well, they do now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's still out there. You can find me from my, from my academy days. Um, but the thing is that, that, when I took my wife's last name, it's one of the few ways that a man can legally change his name. 
So I was able to legally change my name and then execute a whole different series of operations under a completely new name. Was that suggested to you to do that or was that your idea? It was something I, I so I wanted to change my name for a multitude of personal reasons, right? And I can, I can go into that. But I wanted to change my name for personal reasons. And I wondered if there was an operational utility in changing my name. Because anything you do with your history, with your um, ad- administrative background, whether it's your licensure, or your certifications, or your degrees, or any of that, whenever you do any of that inside CIA, you have to get permission. You have to get approval because they've backstopped everything. Yeah. So if it doesn't have an operational benefit, then a lot of times they will say no. So I had to kind of fleet it up to see whether or not it would have an operational benefit. And the operational benefit was essentially your, all of your alias identities are also at some level tied to your true identity through. Yep. So now essentially any alias I have in a new name is tied to the new name, not tied to the old name. Interesting. So it worked out. So it worked out. Yeah, because that was I, I caught you making that that point on another podcast at some point, and I was like, I wonder if that's like a thing. Like, if they go in there and like they have you do that right away. I mean, this is where people go like, oh, once you're in the CIA, like you're gone from society. I, to me, that wouldn't make sense, but it, it it does make sense that once you're already actually operational, if you want to like reset the deck. That's that obviously is, is, is something that that's pretty clear, but it's like changing clothes inside of a changing room. Yes. People might see you go in with the clothes, but they see you come out wearing the clothes that you took in and they don't actually see what you took, what you did behind the door. So everything you do inside CIA, people don't see what you did inside CIA. So when you do this though, were I, I can't remember if you said this at the beginning, so I just want to make sure I have this defined. You were doing that to set up that new name in response to the things that had already happened where you were in danger mode from certain countries? No. 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 It, it was a benefit because hmm. my previous name had a footprint all its own. And my new name had a chance to develop a new footprint all its own. And while I'm telling you both names today, nobody knew both names at the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to the world, the next day after I changed my name, Andrew Bustamante was brand new. Right? You could you could Google search it if Google Google wasn't very powerful in 2010, but you know, you could Google search it, you could uh, take it to microfiche, you could run background checks, you could do whatever you want to and there would be a dead it'd be a dead end. Right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, somebody back then could search Andrew Gregg and do all the same research. And they would find it going up to a certain point and then drop it off. And then that's when I was in the changing room. Nobody sees what happens in the changing room. Champagne room, yeah. right? Yeah. So That's a better example. <laughs> that's a good one. But what, what made you, without revealing specific countries or details or places, what kind of situations got you into a point where now you have, I don't know what the number is, but you have three, four countries or something? on your list where it's like, well, I can never go there because I may die. Like, what kinds of things cause that? Just operations of, like, they know, oh, he flipped this guy five years ago, or was it something more serious? Um, a lot of that's classified. What ends up happening is you, if you, every, remember we were talking about uh, the cone of uncertainty? Yes. The cone of uncertainty also works in reverse. So when you do something in anonymity, 
there's the fat end of the cone. You can hide inside the fat end of the cone because you have anonymity. But then as you continue doing similar things, you kind of work yourself into a place where you can hide in fewer and fewer places. Mm. So just as a generic example, if you do something operating against Russia, Russia may never find you. But then when you do your next round of operations and they're in Cuba, Cuba may never find you. But now Russia may find somebody who was both in Russia and in Cuba. And then when you do your next round of operations and you're in Ecuador, China, or Belarus, right, your cone is getting smaller and smaller. The places you can hide are fewer and fewer because the countries that you're working against are all sharing information. One country by themselves may never have enough information to pin you down, but when they share their information together, you start to run into a real problem. We live in a world where inside the United States, as Jim and I have talked about, we don't like to share. The broken toys went to counterterrorism, an organization. Oh my God, it's not coming to work, it's not doing it. You know what, right. send them over to CT. In the meantime, we got you know basically memos saying, hey, there's dudes down in Arizona that just want to learn how to, they don't need, care about taking off or flying, or landing. Yeah. Yeah, 63 pages. You know? so, anyway. so that was pre-9-11. So then 9-11 happens. Everybody everybody sees what happens at 9-11, right? And then when the, uh, the 9-11 Commission report investigation starts, 9-11 Commission starts, now they start picking up the scrappings on the scraps on the floor. And they start saying, hey, FBI said this. CIA said this. They sent it to each other. Neither side actually read it. CIA doesn't like to give our information to FBI. Nobody likes to give to Secret Service. Yeah. Nobody likes to give it to NSA. Outside of here, everybody, all of our enemies share their information on Americans. That's a really good point because I think that is where a lot of, you know, like there, there are conspiracies that are real. There's bad people in everything. Like it's just what it is, including the CIA. But I think a lot of the problems that we have run into in this country do come back to that basic human thing that a lot of us run into in our own relationships and stuff, communication. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's nice to hear you define it that way. But, like, yeah, when you read this stuff, you read things like FSB and SVR interchangeably. You yes. know, I'm sure there's got to still be some human element there, but, like, they're ordered by their dictatorial regime. Like, yo, you're fucking talking to each right. other. Whereas, you know, we just got to look at the buildup to 9-11 and everything with the FBI and CIA. That could have been avoided if they were sharing information, yeah. but they weren't. I mean, the director of CIA is a presidential appointee, right? Every time the president changes, they appoint a new person, Yeah. right? doesn't matter how good or bad you are in your career at CIA, you're never going to become, most likely, you'll never become the director of CIA. If you do, you become an interim director of CIA before the president appoints one of their favorites. A lot of these people who are put in this position, though, now, like recently, there was Mike Pompeo was in there. He had, you know, he was a military guy before that, but he was a congressman. You know, like, it's not like he was at CIA. Like, when you were there, 07 to 2014, you would have had General, Leon Panetta, yep, Petraeus. General, yep, uh, General, um, General Hayden. Okay. Yeah. So you had turnover, but, like, Petraeus was high-level military. So kind of outside, but probably involved in a lot of things. Hayden was NSA, like he had been around the block. Panetta had been around the block a bunch too. He's a little bit of a political guy, but still. Like, was there a little bit of a veil among the rank and file of the CIA? Like, oh, they're not from here, or for the guys who weren't? That there's like, it's almost like you're in that director chair, but there's shit that's not being told to you because you're in that chair and because you're not one of us? 
Uh, I wouldn't say it was like that from the ground up, no. Okay. So from the ground up, because um, you got to keep in mind that the, the people who advise the director are all senior intelligence service for the most part, and they want to continue having a very successful senior intelligence service job, right? So the last thing they want to do is try to hide something from the director. That doesn't mean the director understands what they're being told all the time, but that's why they have their advisors that they can lean on. I think what's, what's really challenging, in my opinion, is that when you start into a career where you already know that the highest you'll ever be able to get is not the highest seat, right away you're kind of disincentivized from the mm. beginning. And then even worse, when you know that it's a pyramid, like they may bring in 600 case officers this year, but you already know that there's only enough space for 300 of you 10 years from now to reach GS-15. So that means we either expect 300 of you to quit or be fired or accept the fact that you're never going to get to mid-career, right? And it just keeps on going from there. The military has some parts of the military, Coast Guard specifically, I think, has this policy of up or out where you either, if you're an officer, you either climb in rank or you leave, right? And the agency doesn't have an up or out policy. So it really is about whether or not someone's going to achieve or live in mediocrity. Yeah, I, I, the only thing, though, the, the currency that's not being focused on enough there potentially when I hear it is like information. That's what these guys do. And I could say it's about NSA and FBI in a way too, but like at CIA, senior spies who, as you say, want to hold those roles so they're not incentivized not to tell the director something, I'm not so sure that would always be true because these guys have been, like, you may be getting a director who hasn't even been in some of these places right. or has no fucking idea what's going on, right. and they do, and they, maybe they live with the weight of the world on their shoulders, these senior guys, because they actually know what's going down. To me, because you have someone who doesn't know sitting in that seat, you're the guy who knows you hold the cards, so you can decide, you know what, I'm going to show them the jack and the queen, I'm not going to show them the king today. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, you're not wrong. There is a, a bit of fiefdom building, right, where people are, are manipulating the policy that they want to see happen, and that backfires, right? You, I mean, that's there, we, didn't, we didn't have a mess in Afghanistan because we did everything right. We didn't, <laughs> you, you know that like, Syria was just welcomed back into the Arab League. So that means in 2011, when the Civil War started and the Arab League ousted Bashar al-Assad. Now it's 2023, and the Arab League is accepting and, and, and giving hugs to Bashar al-Assad as he comes back into the Arab League. That You don't go through, the, what was that, 13 years, 12 years of conflict in Syria where chemical weapons were used and war criminals were, were discovered and war crimes were, uh, were documented. That's not a victory. So that means... No. Yeah, so whoever was kind of helping CIA navigate this, the ocean of Syria probably didn't do it right, mm. right? Because Bashar, like the, the authoritative dictator has won the war in Syria at a, at a time when the whole world is looking at authoritarian regimes and asking themselves, is authoritarian or democracy more powerful? 
I didn't know you were going to bring up Syria there, but this is perfect because I, I did want to go to this. This is something we didn't get to last time, and I, I want to get to a lot of foreign policy with you, so let's just take this opportunity to yeah. do it right now. So the way I've seen this from afar, I had Joby Warwick in here at one point who wrote Black Flags, which is like considered the Bible on the history of ISIS. Well, that's a bad way to put it, but <laughs> he wrote he wrote the history of ISIS, Got it. basically, and it won a Pulitzer, and it, obviously it was he, he did an amazing job with his reporting. The most fascinating terrorist figure I think I've ever come across. We're familiar with, with bin Laden. Bin Laden and, and Zawahiri and his number two guy, they were of a completely different type. These are people who were professionals. Bin Laden was an engineer. His number two was a medical physician, so they're educated. Uh, sophisticated people, they have sort of a strategic vision of this terrorist organization they're trying to create. So Kali was none of that. He was just a street tough. But he also, the next time he comes in here, we're going to talk about his most recent book that he wrote on Syria, which was really, really good. And I think it was called Redline. And so, to me, Syria has always looked like the center of a lot, I'm not going to say everything, but of a lot of things. Because geographically, it's located basically right in between Europe and where it gets into mainland Asia. They're a port place. They have coast, right? They're in the Middle East. Russia has had a very strategic relationship with them for a long time. Their dictator leader seems to be a homicidal maniac, but he's also like Oxford educated or some shit. And his wife like speaks the kings. Very interesting to me. And in the middle of all this, you have a country, and please correct me where I'm wrong here, but you have a country where all of these, basically all these nations have undercover operations, which I guess is par for the course, but then all these different radical groups within the Middle East specifically who don't fucking like each other. Like, they're not like, yay, terrorists, yay, terrorists. Like, they're fighting each other too. Right. They're all fighting for these little teeny fiefdoms within the country displaced among it and in the middle of that you have you can talk about some of the chemical weapons i think you already hinted at that that, that he's used and, and stuff like that and you have these almost like a proxy war without there being a full-blown war where you have the united states watching this because of the strategic elements that that country possesses and you got like russia with vis-a-vis -vis china on the other side of it all in the middle of this country that otherwise people maybe wouldn't give a fuck about Yes, yeah, so you don't have like a proxy war. You have a yeah. proxy war. That's what Syria was. Syria was probably the first major proxy war example of the modern era. If you recall, we've talked about whether or not World War III is coming or whether World War III is already starting. Yes. Right? I would argue that World War III is a proxy war, a proxy version of a world war, meaning multiple conflicts in multiple places that are largely being driven by two primary proxies. Right? And those two primary proxies, for the most part, are Russia and the United States. And that's exactly what you had in Syria. Right? Here you had a civil war that broke out because, because Western-backed rebel groups challenged the Assad regime. When you say Western back, can you just define that for some people? United States, NATO. Yeah, but how are they backing them? Are they? Are, is it just weapons, arming them? Yeah, weapons, training. Basically, you had a rebel group that was trying to say that they wanted to oust their current dictator and then pursue some version of democracy, right? And when that happens, a lot of times, whenever an, an autocracy is, is being challenged by an internal guerrilla or internal rebel group, then democracies of the world come to their aid. And that's what happened in Syria, right? It, it, 
the narrative that many of us were given was that the Assad regime was cruel and the Assad regime was unjust and they were all this other stuff. And maybe they were, right? And, and yes, they were by Western standards. What, by, do you mean? what do you mean? By Middle Eastern standards, cruel and vicious is very different. Kill a few kids with chemical weapons, sarin gas, no problem. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the term honor killing? Like in Japan? Where they like split their fucking stomach open and No, that's uh that's what is that called when the samurais do that? Uh key something? Harikari, something like that. Anyways. Yeah, that sounds familiar. No. Honor killing. Honor killing is when you oftentimes either an adult or a spouse kills a member of their family in order to bring honor to the family name. That's very common in the Middle East. Okay. That is completely something that is that we would never think about in the West. Sure. It's culturally accepted in the Middle East. But what about just dumping a bunch of sarin gas on a bunch of families and civilians? What I'm saying is that we have completely different definitions of what is culturally acceptable behavior, right? When it came to, when it came to uh, Assad using chemical weapons, the West, the, the Obama administration is the one that said that this is a red line yes. topic. That if you do this, there will be no going back. And then he did it, and then there was no response, right? So who, who should we be more surprised with? The guy who ran a dictatorial country in the Middle East where violence and, and criminal acts is the norm? Or the West that said that this was a, a line that could never be violated and then let it happen anyways? Right? That's what I'm saying. What, what, what the, bigger, the bigger learning point in Syria, the most significant learning point in Syria, is that the argument that authoritarian regimes are weaker than democracy has been proven wrong. Bashar al-Assad was welcomed back into the Arab League, a league that is largely populated with allies to the United States, like... UAE and Saudi Arabia. He now sits at an equal table with the same people who funded the rebel groups who tried to oust him starting as far back as 2011. What gave him the leverage to do that? What gave him the leverage to win? Because his country is still infested with all kinds of rebel groups. It's a shit show. Yeah. It's that, like he be, The way it sounds to me is that he basically lives in his palace. He's got control over the, the government. That has control over, like, if you look at a map of Syria, I'll put it in the corner of the screen right now. I'm going to draw just, like, a little circle on there like an idiot. And he has control of that little area. And the rest of it is all just, like, Mad Max Fury Road. Right. So how does he have the leverage to join the Arab League? That's what I don't understand. Like, okay, Obama said red line in 2013. There's a whole backstory there, too. And didn't follow up by starting a war. Okay, there was no war. But, like, now he's just going to walk into the Arab League? He was invited back. Not even walk back. He was invited. Back. But they didn't like him. They, like you said, they were funding some of the rebel groups. So what does he have on them? It's not that he has anything on them as much as it is that the powers of the world are being more judicious in where they put their energy and their effort. Right? Saudi Arabia recently uh, opened uh, or, or uh, recently signed a peace agreement with Iran over the conflict in Yemen, which is another proxy war. We're going to talk about that. Right? So then by getting out of Yemen, Saudi Arabia no longer has to be pouring resources into Yemen. Saudi Arabia no longer has to be pouring resources into Syria. Now Saudi Arabia can consolidate their resources and use them somewhere else. 
Same thing with UAE, right? So these other Arab wealthy nations can consolidate their resources and use them somewhere else. Similarly, you have, you have relationships that are being built between the Arab world and Israel being brokered by China, right? Being so, brokered by China. So what is this shit? So what was it, four years ago? I'm sorry, two years ago? I think it was two years ago, possibly last year. No, it was two years ago. Uh, Israel signed normalizing uh, diplomatic registrations with Oman, UAE, uh, I think it was possibly Qatar, where they basically normalized diplomatic relations between these countries that otherwise never recognized Israel, right? And this was big news. And that was, that was a, a peace agreement that was negotiated in large part by China and some of the other, uh, some smaller other uh, emerging democracies or emerging world powers, right? The world, as we've known it for the last 20 years, is starting to change. It's starting to rebalance. And it's rebalancing because it's realizing the same thing that I hope you and I are starting to realize, that some countries might be better off under authoritarian rule. That yes. just because authoritarian and democracy stand diametrically opposed to each other doesn't mean democracy is always right or that authoritarianism is always wrong. And especially right now with a war raging in Europe between an authoritarian Russia and a what we claim to be democratic Ukraine, as that war rages on, the only real punchline, the only real media narrative that we have here is that authoritarian rulers are somehow inherently wrong and evil and illegitimate, except that Syria is now being run by an authoritarian ruler who essentially just won. And China is reaching superpower status under an authoritarian ruler. The other argument for what you're saying is that democracy is a bit of a facade because in most countries you have two parties, they all get fucking drinks together in the fucking capital, and there's constant gridlock and it's kind of set up so that they divide people right it's it, that really only exists in our country <laughs> you don't think that exists in france in most countries there's not just two parties in most countries in most democratic countries there's multiple parties and they form coalitions they all still get drunk and have fun together but it's right. really only in the united states that we create the facade of two parties fair. but they all still party together in washington fair fair I'm saying, like, it'll come out to the two majority parties that get more of the attention. I'm going to forget some of the names right now. But you'll also get, like, think, imagine Bernie Sanders is listed as an independent here, but, like, he calls himself a Democrat when he goes to run for office or something. Like, he's going into that party. But, like, imagine he had his own party, right? which he kind of does. But, like, imagine he actually had one. A lot of the, the way I understand a lot of these countries have like a Bernie and a Hillary. And then like when it comes election time, whoever has more, like they go with that person, which also is not that much different here, I guess. I'm, I'm kind of making my point for myself. <laughs> but like there's kind of this facade that like, oh, democracy, whatever, you know. To me, I think a lot of it still leans authoritarian. And the difference is the authoritarianism that you're talking about when people don't even have the facade of of you know the people having a say they can do more in if they're a bad person and most dictators obviously are they can do a lot more than you know the president here can do because there is you know these laws or whatever you know there's not <laughs> there's, that doesn't you were talking about honor killings and shit in other countries yeah, like yeah. it's not like that right so i'm not saying like i think you're right but it's kind of to me just to one 
one coin's a little more discreet about it. The other one side of the coin's more discreet about it. The other side is just like, oh, in your face, here's some sarin gas. So this is, I think, what we're getting at, and what you're touching on is really human nature, right? Yes. It's, there are true democracies, and there's all there's all sorts of different types of democracies, right? There's representative republics, and there's presidential democracies, and there's monarch-based democracies. Like there's all sorts of there's there's a thousand flavors of democracy, but to to kind of get to the crux of it it's about whether it's about how much voice the average person has and in the united states the average person has a voice but their voice is really only as loud as they let it get to select their representative yes. right their their house person their congress person their senate person outside of that you really don't have a voice your voice really only pipes up every two years or so we all think we matter but all that really matters, the only way we're really represented in government is by our congressperson or by our senator. There are other countries in the world where every single decision of the state gets voted on by the people, right? I think Norway's like that, Sweden's like that. And then there's countries like, like China where, and Russia where the whole voting process is kind of a sham because they already know who their Politburo member is and the Politburo members are the only ones that get to vote on who the head of the Politburo is and that's all a matter of who's going to get elected and who's getting cultivated for when, for what, and for where. So it's not really at all like a democracy, which is why we don't call it that. So now, either way, though, back to the Middle East and the rise of authoritarianism or re-rise, whatever, you have all these different places. Like, Syria, to me, what, like, what is different about it today, minus Assad being eased back into the world stage, I guess, in some ways? Has there been any real change there in a decade or it's Syria is a useless place, man. Like Syria, Syria was fucked up before the war. Yep. That's what led to a civil war. And now it's fucked up after the war has, I I'm calling it over. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who will say it's not over because there's still factions fighting, but there are factions fighting before, but essentially their ousted, uh, illegitimate leader has now been legitimized and brought back into the Arab kingdom or the Arab world, right? So call it whatever you want to call it, but it's no longer a civil war where the whole, where the whole world agrees that the leader should not be the leader. Now it's something different. What, what's important about Syria is not Syria. What's important about Syria is who was nature, right? Yes. It's, there are true democracies and there's all, there's all sorts of different types of democracies, right? There's representative republics and there's presidential democracies and there's monarch based democracies like there's all sorts of there's there's a thousand flavors of democracy but to to kind of get to the crux of it it's about whether it's about how much voice the average person has and in the united states the average person has a voice but their voice is really only as loud as they let it get to select their representative, yes. right? Their, their house person, their Congress person, their Senate person. Outside of that, you really don't have a voice. Your voice really only pipes up every two years or so. We all think we matter, but all that really matters, the only way we're really represented in government is by our Congress person or by our Senator. There are other countries in the world where every single decision of the state gets voted on by the people. Right? I think Norway's like that, Sweden's like that. And then there's countries like like China where and Russia where the whole voting process is kind of a sham because they already know who their Politburo member is and the Politburo members are the only ones that get to vote on who the head of the Politburo is and that's all 
a matter of who's going to get elected and who's getting cultivated for when, for what, for where. So it's not really at all like a democracy, which is why we don't call it that. So now, either way, though, back to the Middle East and the rise of authoritarianism or re-rise, whatever, you have all these different places. Like, Syria, to me, what like what is different about it today, minus Assad being eased back into the world stage, I guess, in some ways, has there been any real change there in a decade? Or it's... Syria is a useless place, man. Like, Syria was fucked up before the war. Yep, that's what led to a civil war. And now it's fucked up after the war has... I'm calling it over. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who will say it's not over because there's still factions fighting. There are factions fighting before. But essentially, their ousted, uh, illegitimate leader has now been legitimized and brought back into the Arab kingdom or the Arab world, right? So call it whatever you want to call it, but it's no longer a civil war where the whole, where the whole world agrees that the leader should not be the leader. Now it's something different. What, what's important about Syria is not Syria. What's important about Syria is who, was, who were the two countries that were most closely supporting Bashar al-Assad in his war against the rebels? Well, Russia and Saudi, Iran. Oh, Iran. Supporting Syria. Supporting yes. the, the Assad regime. Well, now that he's won, guess who, whose support he doesn't really need so much of anymore? Russia and Iran. So all those resources that Russia and Iran were putting into Syria, where are they going to go now? Don't say Ukraine. To support Russia's conflict in Ukraine. Right? And not only that, but you also have the Middle East, who has now welcomed Assad, the Assad regime, Right? They're essentially trying to consolidate their resource and consolidate their power. So guess where you're not going to see a lot of support for Ukraine come from? The Middle East. And then you have the larger question of, does this make Russia and China feel like their authoritarian regimes are less legitimate or more legitimate now that they're seeing how the world is reacting to Syria? Well, now they know. At the very least, we're going to have rich oil money back us up as long as we're the strongest people, right? As long as we come out of this strong... We can count on the Arab League to recognize that we're the legitimate rulers of our country, no matter what the United States has to say. Right. So they don't, they don't have any pull, essentially. Right. And the reason that all that's important is because we, you and I have sat here before, around this round table before, talking about whether or not the world is dividing into two different yes. camps. A year ago when we had the conversation... I think it was kind of an open question. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It could just be a transition. More and more, it looks like it really is dividing. Yeah. And it's dividing between Western powers and centers of influence that are not Western in nature. So you've got Russia and China, at the very least. Iran. You've got Iran, right? All of them have common enemies in the United States. NATO, nobody hates NATO. Nobody hates Europe. I can find you a few. <laughs> but commenters, let's let's see it. <laughs> but, but what people do know is that NATO basically does what the United States tells them to do, even though France and Germany, the two largest economies in NATO, are very very closely aligned and very dependent on economic interests that they have in China. Yes, right. And they used to be very dependent on economic interests that they had through energy in Russia. Arguably, the only way that Germany was able to kind of weather the embargo on oil or the embargo on power that 
that Putin put in place was by breaking all of their own rules, all of their own uh, social environmentalist yes. priorities. Right, like the nuclear energy. Yeah. And all that, yeah, they had to turn all their nuclear plants back on and start burning coal again. Fire them up, baby. Let's go. <laughs> so you see, like the world is absolutely taking sides. It's, it's deciding. And the bigger question, to me, the thing that that is not being paid attention to is that we're talking about Russia and China. Everybody's talking about Russia and China. There's a trade block that Russia and China are part of, and that trade block is called BRICS. Yes, Brazil. Russia, India, China, and South Africa. When you look at all of those countries together, and you look at their history of activity in the UN resolutions against Russia, you start to see a very clear picture. Brazil, China, India, Russia, and South Africa are all either abstaining from UN votes or openly supporting Russia. Add to that list now Iran and Syria, who are now all in the authoritarian camp. They've all got vested interests in strongman governments because that's what they have. And that's in this corner. You have the BRICS and the developing authoritarian nations of the world. And in this corner, you have an inflationary, conflicted, torn United States, along with NATO, who is also suffering from the same kind of inflation and the same kind of political divide because they've modeled themselves in many ways off of the United States. And... These are the two kind of factions that are going to be moving forward in this potential World War III of proxy conflict. Yeah, the, the conflict, to put a word on it, it, it feels like it culminates in a monetary conflict more than anything. It's absolutely, it's a, it's a conflict. It's cyber. It's a conflict for, for economic power. Because if you don't have economic power, you can't have military power. So is part of the reason... Like, everyone gets real upset about the whole Ukraine thing because there's a lot of money going in there and everything, and we haven't technically put boots on the ground, which I appreciate that part of it. But you're never going to make everyone happy. People are always going to be complaining, why can't we spend the money here? And there's some validity to that for sure. And, you know, the Ukrainian government certainly has always had a lot of problems, and that has not changed just because they're in a war. So I, I get that. But is there a case to say that having a financial interest in Ukraine, and I'll use this term, making them a client state in that part of the world, is really economically a long-term good decision for the United States. Is there a decent case for that? Um, I wouldn't say that there's no case. I don't know that there's a strong case, because... You have other NATO allies that are already essentially client states, representatives of democracy sure. in the region. So what? why is Ukraine special? Why is Ukraine different than Romania? Why is Ukraine different than uh, Hungary, right? In many ways, you see Hungary getting very upset about the conflict because they're, they're suffering. They themselves, as a country, in NATO, as part of the, you know, in the UN, they themselves are losing resources because of this conflict going on in Ukraine. But Ukraine is, is actually, and obviously there are some other countries like this, but from a size and GDP perspective, Ukraine is the largest country in that area that is attached to Russia. I think minus, does Germany touch Russia? No. It doesn't. There's Poland between them, right? Poland south. Yeah. So, 
So the get my I'll put the map in the corner for yeah. people to follow. But basically, my point is Ukraine's large. Yes. So if Russia took that, they now have access to the Black Sea. It increases their. They're also closer to Syria. That increases more of their potential land grab. Because by the way, we just highlighted how the whole Middle East is leaning authoritarian. That's probably net good for Russia, right? Yeah. Right. So economically speaking. Just economically, if that were to happen, if you rolled over and let them do that and then form this whole new block, forget the BRICS even, just like this new block of Russia and countries in the Middle East aligned, we all know they got that oil money out there and everything, that is an economic disaster for the West because you're lining up more countries who at least were forced to do business with us for a while and now they're not. Therefore, Ukraine is kind of like the tipping point. And so we're putting money into that to help push the Russians back. To avoid that tipping point, it's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of if what if speculation. Yes, there, right. So I would say that that at an extreme case, you could go with what you just laid out, but it would be a pretty extreme case, because more realistically, what happened here is that is that uh, Russia understands that Ukraine is critical to their long term survival. Like infrastructure, their their oil infrastructure goes right through yes. eastern Ukraine, and then the country. I mean, e even before the invasion of Ukraine, twenty percent of Ukrainians thought of themselves as Russians, and they have a long history of yes. of being connected. Right, so you've got all of that complicated effort going on there, plus the migration of NATO closer and closer to Russian borders, which is also a threat to Russia. So Russia was seeing threats from two different places. They were seeing NATO coming closer to their borders, and they were seeing their own infrastructure and investment that they had put into the into Ukraine during the Soviet Union years. They saw that investment and that, that economic viability drying up, because if Ukraine became independent from Russia, truly independent from Russia, Russia would now lose control of the infrastructure that it needed to deliver oil to its key client states, right? So... There's all sorts of reasons why Russia got involved. Why the United States got involved, why NATO got involved, was really because they saw an opportunity to deplete Russia. That's the strategic benefit for the West. And to be frank, it was the right call. It was the right call to support Ukraine. It was the right call because Ukraine has now been spending its own effort, its own resources, its own lives, fighting with who the, a country that we used to be concerned was a global power competitor and mm -hmm. they're winning on their own battlefield we're battle testing our own weapons right we've found we've had a so reason Ukraine's winning now well no ukraine on their own territory ukraine was able to hold back and 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 control the russian advance russia still controls 70 percent 17 percent of ukraine right we've all been waiting for a big ukrainian counteroffensive. where's that ukrainian counteroffensive coming from it should come at some point, we all hope, but what we really see is the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, on a roadshow through Europe trying to drum up support. Yes. And he's winning support, right? Four tanks here, four jets there, yeah. that kind of thing. Some. That's, that's, I can understand why the counteroffensive hasn't happened yet, because it's going to be very hard to launch a full-scale counteroffensive when, when you have to basically beg, borrow, and steal to get some new hardware from somebody because a year because a year into this thing people are more worried about their own inflation in their country than they are about the war in ukraine so it's it's a sticky situation right but the point is the united states is benefiting from it we in the united states we in the west as much as we want to criticize the war in ukraine or as much as we want to you know support ukrainians 
what we need to understand is that as long as the European conflict stays in Ukraine, we're better off. That's what a proxy war is. Russia gets depleted. China gets depleted through Russia. Everybody's being depleted. The only lives at stake are Ukrainian lives, right? The thing that makes me nervous now, if anything... Wait, how's China depleted through Russia? Because China's now... China is actually sending their... China sends their, uh, their weapons and their material, their munitions to Russia, if that happens, if, if they start getting material support, which still hasn't been confirmed, right? right? So now Russia, Chinese stockpiles are going to be used by Russia, just like American stockpiles are being used by Ukraine. So the problem has been, for the last year, that America has no stockpiles to defend America. We've been giving all of our stuff to Ukraine. Ukraine uses more ammunition in a month than peacetime America makes in a year. <laughs> Russia has been using a ton of munitions, and it has needed to get new munitions because it can't create munitions fast enough either. That's why it's been working with South Africa and why it's been working with China. So the more that there's war in Ukraine, the more that we're reducing our, our, two, our top two military threats, Russia and China, right? Because we have to figure out how to produce more because our long-term defense interests aren't in Ukraine. They're in Asia, right? With the Asia pivot and the focus on Taiwan and everything else. Is a lot of the reason, like, we all know the stories that circulate on the internet, some confirmed, a lot of them not, but, you know, about international arms dealing and places like the CIA being in the middle of it, is a lot of the reason that they do that because all these other, like, I'm just thinking about this because all the conflicts you're bringing up at one time right now, but all these other places have the no rules we talked about and don't mind funding conflicts and causing wars and killing people because they're totally hardened to it. And they're all backed by intelligence. Like all the dudes who are selling these things around the world and, and forget Ukraine, like in Yemen and other places, like these are basically like other intelligence organizations backing wars. Therefore the CIA, like looking at it from the American lens, like, well, we have to play on this field because that's where everyone's playing. That, I mean, that could be a big, uh, that could be part of what's happening. I don't know from my own firsthand experience that any intelligence organization outside of perhaps the IRGC is behind weapons smuggling or arms deals anywhere else in the world. Um, Come on. I don't know of any. Yeah, okay. What I'm saying is I don't know of any, yeah. right? But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Yeah. And, and you're right. If, if there was... If, there were, if one of our uh, critical enemies was supporting arms in Syria, for example, if somebody was selling arms to the Assad regime, then it would make sense for us to then go through our intelligence channels to make sure that we got weapons to the rebels, right? And that is how the intelligence world works. You have to meet the enemy head on. You can't just sit back on some moral high ground and say, oh, you know, playing that way is so far beneath me. Not if it's going to cost you a strategic victory. So for sure, those two things could be going on. But, I mean, to talk about it on an arms dealer level, again, you're talking about threes and fives, right? Five tanks here, three helicopters there. That's not what defines a war. You no. need to have, like, long-term, heavy-duty, logistical uh, way, like, methods built. But there are powerful guys, like that Victor Bauk guy that, you know, we traded like he's in Russia now again, who, I mean, it was a lot more than three tanks here, you know, four bullets. Yeah, there. a whole career, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like there are the people, at Adnan Khashoggi, 
that dude funded every goddamn war for I don't know how long. A long time. He's dead now, thank God. But, you know, someone else replaced him. You know, like, I, I think about this and I'm like, it'd be so stressful for me to be in intelligence because I feel like a lot of these people, they have to be working, playing multiple sides of the coin. You know, they're not, they're not loyal to shit. They're just international chaos dealers, right? And so then it's almost like this is one of those things that comes when it's in my head, it starts to make sense, but it's very hard to explain and, like, get it out into words. It's like it's all a a cycle where... You either hop on the merry-go-round or you don't, but this is the shit and we're all swimming in it, you know? And so these wars happen, and what, what fascinates me is we hear a lot, allegedly, about some, like Ukraine. We hear a little about Syria, a little. Most people, I say, where's Syria? They go, fucking Africa? I don't know, yeah. right? A lot, a lot of people don't know. But then you hear fucking nothing about, like, the war in Yemen. Right. And yet that is a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Is there, are there other people involved there, though, too? I mean, there, there were lots of people involved until Iran and Syria, until Iran and Saudi Arabia reached their deal. Right. And so what, what, can you explain that whole conflict? Because whenever I bring this up to people, they're like, what, what is that? Like, no idea. Yeah, so I think what's important here is to understand that from the time that Ukraine launched... Right, that when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 22, yes, both Syria and Yemen were still war zone areas. They were still yes. wars, active wars. So the world has been so focused on Ukraine that these two other conflict areas have mostly resolved themselves. Right, they're not over, but they're not nearly as hot a conflict as they used to be. And essentially, the key players who were really kind of com uh, competing in that proxy space have backed out of the conflict. So all of that has happened because the world's been paying attention to Ukraine. So we actually haven't seen or really understood the, the nature of proxy war in other countries, and we haven't yet recognized that Ukraine itself is just another version of a proxy war, or we're not, we're not acknowledging it, right? But you had, in, in Yemen, you had a scenario where you had uh, two, you had the, the native government, the original government of Yemen, and then you had the Houthis, who were this uh, sect or this uh, outcasted group who wanted to come back and basically take control of the country themselves because they had been marginalized and abused for so long. So they were a rebel group against the host nation government, very similar to what you saw in Syria. And then you saw uh, the Saudis come in and support the original government, and then you saw the Iranians come in and support the Houthis, and you had UAE come in and you had America get involved and you had, you know, countries from all over the world get involved in Yemen, just like you had so many countries get involved in Syria. Yeah, the same thing happened in Libya. People forgot about Libya also, right? Proxy warfare has been a defining character trait of global geopolitics since 2010. Probably was long before that, too. Before that, yeah. too. But definitely a defining characteristic since then. Uh, the, point, the point of all of it is... When you look at how conflict was carried out in Syria, in Libya, and in Yemen, it's not that different from what you see happening in Ukraine. Yeah, it seems like the same fucking thing. Wealthy countries yes. supporting the fight to deplete the local country without depleting either of the major players, right, in some kind of a conflict to gain international influence because the country itself is not of economic viability. Nobody thinks that the future is in Libya, the future is in Syria, the future is in Yemen. They have, like, like, Libya has oil reserves, right? Syria has 
natural resources. Yemen has natural resources, and it's in a fantastic location, uh, you know, right on the corner of the yep. uh, of the Middle Eastern uh, seas. I'll stick that map in the corner. For yeah, so you've got all sorts of strategic benefits in Yemen, but not economic. But it also, it's kind of like a, I don't want to, like, be too, like, middle school playground here but it's kind of like a show of might in these places when you do get a w or something like that i mean that that shit exists it's sim symbolism's everything that's what narratives are that's how narratives drive everything so you know i would think if you have saudi arabia who's a friend like biggest air quotes of all time there but allegedly like a friend over there fighting against someone who's definitely not a friend in Iran, who we spent the last better part of, say, 15, 20 years, extremely priority one concerned about their ability to produce nuclear weapons. Right. I would think that whether or not they're fighting over, what was the term Trump had for that? Shithole countries or whatever? <laughs> whether they're fighting over, which was like the worst thing ever to say, but whether they're fighting over countries that you view that way or not, you should care. I'm, t I'm not even talking about the people right now, like like me sitting in the seat. I'm saying like the people in the government. And it's not like there aren't people who don't care and aren't paying attention to Yemen and the government. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying like it, the prioritization of it seems to be quite low. Right. The, I would say that you're right in that it, people aren't paying attention to it. And I would say that you're right that uh, there are other priorities that the government is more invested in. Uh, and part of that, I think, is also because we only know what the government's focused on in as much as it's shared with us through the media. And then the media itself yeah. is interested in certain regions because it gets more media attention. White people, not white people. Whatever it might be, yeah. right? So, so it's difficult. It's really difficult to understand what is the true nature of the U.S.'s interest in these different proxy conflicts. I think the, the place where I find, when people ask me why I watch, and when people ask me why I pay attention, the reason I'm so interested is because what we're seeing is we're seeing these countries that have largely been characterized as poor, backwards, and weak. We see them as banding together and actually making like global impact. Even if it is a negative impact, they're still making a global impact. But then we see these other countries as advanced and liberal and progressive and we are somehow appearing weaker than we did in the past so these backwards weak countries look stronger than they did in the past and us liberal progressive countries seem weaker than we did in the past why is that is that really what's happening and if it's not really what's happening why are we seeing it that way because when you count wins and losses right an authoritarian country has successfully invaded a sovereign country and owns 17% of their territory. Mm -hmm. A authoritarian country is the number two wealthiest country in the planet right now and, yeah. ha and has everybody kind of on edge everywhere. An authoritarian country that was deemed illegitimate in 2011 is now being recognized as legitimate again. But we also deem, like this is so... It, it has to do with who's playing nice in the sandbox with us. Like, we didn't 
there, there's some media rhetoric against Saudi Arabia and stuff, but that's about it. They've been a friend forever because we love their fucking arms, baby. Like, that's what we're doing. Well, they, they love our weapons. We love their oil. Yes, I, I, I'm sorry. I had that ass backwards, my bad. We love, <laughs> yeah, we love that. And then when we need it, now we have some friction there because we haven't, we have been trying to take that holier than thou ground, which on the surface I agree with, but you're getting to a hard truth here, which is that sometimes you got to play with the bad guys. Sometimes you got to play with the bad guys. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's really, that's a tough one because, you know, Bin Salman over there is a psycho. And if you piss him off, monetarily they got a lot of power we know that locationally they got a lot of power and you know the 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 500 pound elephant in the room this whole time that's been coming up around all this is iran and you know we obviously i mentioned their nuclear bomb a few minutes ago and and that whole worry but you know it does seem like over the past three four years that has become like the main focus in there i think was it jim lawler who told he said China was his number one overall concern, but Iran is like his number one immediate concern. And then there were a couple other, there were a couple other like government people who said like Iran's the big problem. And I think that it's a little bizarre what we've been seeing from there because we saw these protests happen in like I don't know, September, October, something like that. And it's there's still some of that going on. But the regime that's been in power since 1979, which is a psycho, you know, old school, conservative, Islamic regime that, you know, doesn't have any type of first world interests, I guess you could say, they still seem to be holding on to power just fine and committing atrocities now pretty openly with, with respect to some of these people they've killed at these protests. And all the while, we remain seriously concerned that they're closer to a nuke and it doesn't sound like we have something up our sleeve at the moment like we did in like 2013 with that you know the hacking we did into their nuclear facilities but like what you know is is iran towards the top of your list too like is that like top three like something that you're concerned about or what's the worst case outside of like nukes what's the worst case scenario there yeah so one of the one of the reasons you're seeing so many former government types preach on about iran is because of they're, they're old hats. They're old hats coming from the global war on terror. And Iran is a major player in the global war on terror, right? So let's take a look at Iran right now. So Ayatollah Khamenei is aging. He's quite old. And they're already planning his succession. So when an Ayatollah dies, a new Ayatollah has to be identified. And the two people that have been identified for succession after Khamenei passes, or when Khamenei retires, if he retires... Uh, are are two very different men. One is like a former judicial type and and academic with not a lot of seminary religious experience, but a lot of vested interest in Sharia law. So oh, kind of a sucks. hardline sucky, right? Yeah. The other one is a guy who came up in the IRGC. That also sucks. As a hardcore hawkish IRGC type. When you compare that or when you pair that information along with the fact that when you actually look at the governing body of Iran, the clerics that decide what happens in Iran, um, the vast majority of those clerics have gone from being religious scholars to being IRGC-backed politicians. So mm. when you think of Iran, you have to think of a 
changing Iran that's going from Islamic extreme or ex Islamic law, Sharia law, to more and more extremist ideas based in their background in the IRGC, the the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Sure. Sure or fart. I mean, they're both bad. They're both bad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Both of these options are bad. One of them is more tactically dangerous. The other one is more ideologically dangerous. So no matter how you look at the future with Iran, it's going in one of these two directions. Okay. The other side that people don't acknowledge is that Iran is only considered a rogue nation by the West. In the Middle East, everybody trades with Iran. Iran is like the breadbasket of the Middle East. I, when I lived in Abu Dhabi, some of my favorite food to buy was food that was grown in Iran. Excellent fruits and vegetables, right? And, and this is, and the, you, when you look on any kind of geopolitical map, it'll show you that the UAE and Iran are enemies, but not in trade, right? Same thing with Saudi, not in trade. All these countries are trading with Iran because Iran is the nearest and richest uh, location for agricultural goods. That's why they're never really truly outcasted. Yeah, we keep their lights on. We, those places are keeping their lights on. Correct, correct. So when you look at, when you ask me the question of, you know, what's my concern, what keeps me up in, at night about Iran, it's that Iran is really the last strong bastion of Islamic extremism, of radical Islam, all over the world. They fund Hezbollah. They fund... Can you explain that, funding Hezbollah? Yeah, so uh, before we started seeing proxy wars, what we started seeing were proxy military militias. Militias that carried out certain operations in different parts of the world, but were supported financially by a third country. So weird. Yeah. So you've got Hezbollah, who is now the primary government power in Lebanon, backed by Iran. You've got Hamas, which is the primary, uh, con the primary body of conflict against the Israelis in Israel, backed by Iran. You had the Houthis in Yemen. That were a separate fighting force, a proxy, you know, funded by Iran. And that's kind of how Iran works. They fund these extremist groups operating all over the world. And that's their kind of key to maintaining relevance and power. Because they can fund these groups, these groups can execute certain operations, and then Iran can sweep in periodically and choose to use their actual IRGC forces or their military capability to support these operations depending on where they are. So some people suspect that it was actually Iran who launched the airstrikes against the power, uh, the power plant in Saudi Arabia back in 2001, I want to say it was. So credit went to the Houthis, but it was actually the Iranians that did the sure. dirty work, right? Yeah. So that's when you talk to old school global war on terrorism types, that's why they're so focused on Iran. Because Iran is tactical, clear and present danger. China is a future threat. So that's why you see them talk so much about the current concerns. When you talk to more strategic individuals, they talk more about China. Because we've learned over the last 20 years how to combat extremism and how to combat... Have we? We've, when was the last time you had a terrorist attack inside the United States? That's fair. That's very fair. Like, from a defensive standpoint, I won't disagree with you there. But, like... When we went over there... Afghanistan's one thing. I've defended that hardcore, and I will defend that. Like, had to happen. But, like, after Iraq and everything, I mean, you want to talk about a power vacuum, you just talk about Assad being let back into all these places. Like, that's a direct result of a lot of our failures there. And I'm Absolutely. talking milita militarily. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying... That 
we we have to think that any military conflict has offensive and defensive sides. One of them is a priority over the other. Defense is always a priority, right? We, we fucked up in Afghanistan. Like, we left that place in shambles. And now there's a power vacuum. The Taliban stepped in. They're partnering with China. Rare earth minerals are coming out of Afghanistan. That place is a mess, right? Total disaster. Syria, total disaster. We were active in both places, right? So proxy active in Syria, not necessarily. We learned. I don't like that nod. I didn't like that <laughs> nod at all. You were just like, yeah. Yeah, we learned in Afghanistan that interstate war, which is when you invade another country, is expensive and not always successful in the end. Yeah, we, we've learned that in a few of them, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I think we've already talked about Afghanistan, I think, on this show. Maybe it was with Concrete, too, when we did the crossover, but I, I don't want to go to that right now. The other one outside of Iran, though, that's been coming up sporadically a little bit throughout the conversation, though, is the one that's not like the others over there, which mm. is Israel. You have all these collegiate culture places, Islamic-back-type places, and you have Israel, which is the Jewish state. They're in the middle of a bunch of countries that, for a long time, it was like all these countries hated them for who they were, and now they've cultivated friendships. You know, it started with Egypt back in... What was that, 80 or 79 or something? And then some of the other, like, they have a good relationship with Jordan. And they're very, you hear about them a lot because they have the total survival instinct there. I mean, let's call it what it is. We're less than 80 years out from, like, all the ancestors of these people, including some of them who are still alive and were attempted to be exterminated. So they have a, a worldview and an understanding of, like, survival and worry about me that few other places around the world have and I, I always take that into account with with how they how they operate but you know it seems like Mossad and their intelligence arm is the most impressive one that I've heard in the world just with the shit they're able to pull off how much of the things we're seeing in the Middle East be it with more friendly countries like the UAE Saudi Arabia for sure in this question masking like how much of that do you think is driven by Israel's success in leverage from an intelligence perspective and in, in being able to formulate places not hating them over there. And that also is like kind of an extension of our interests here. So I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, Israel's a very advanced intelligence infrastructure for sure. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that their, their increase in diplomatic uh, clout is a reflection of their intelligence service. I really? Think, I think it's more just in a representation of their advanced diplomatic clout. So a lot of what you see Mossad do around the world is partner with uh, other services, other intelligence services, over common enemies, like Iran. Yes. Right? So that's where most of their work is. They don't put a lot of necessary... They don't put a great deal of effort into trying to create covert influence campaigns that win support for the Jewish plight. That's not really what they do. Um, they don't really need to because they have statesmen and politicians who are very effective at that on their own, right? And let's not forget that, uh, that Israel is a very close partner to the United States. So the United States also wants to see Israel win friendships with sure. other strategic allies in the region, especially in, in the world that we've seen for the last five to seven years and for the world that we're going to continue to see for the next 10 to 20 years where people have to pick sides, whether they sure. pick sides 
like with true loyalty or whether they just pick sides out of convenience. We don't really know. So I think that's a lot of what you see going on in Israel. Um, Israel is a fantastic example of how scrappy and resourceful a country can be when it really is facing an existential threat. Sure. We talk about, you hear the word, excuse me, you hear the word existential threat thrown out a lot in American politics. You'll hear pundits get up on stage and talk about how existential threat to our democracy, existential threat to our future, existential threat to our success. We, we are not facing an existential threat. There is nothing out there that actually threatens the existence of the United States. Nothing, can, nothing that I know of can overnight destroy our political infrastructure or kill every known American. Just doesn't exist. Okay. In Israel, they actually have to face existential I threats. I see what you're saying. Okay. Overnight, they could totally be obliterated. And that's a very real threat to them, right? So they have adopted a methodology there. The Mossad has adopted a methodology that is constantly combating that level of threat. What, when you say methodology? When it comes to uh, physical attacks on individuals, when it comes to the risks that they take. To like either, Well, I mean, Mossad does some of the most daring raids. Uh, you've, we've, we've seen news reports about Mossad riding by on motorcycles and attaching sticky bombs to cabs, right? That is a brazen type of operation. Yes. You really only do that when you're in a position of existential threat, right? The, the Israelis actually rescued, I want to say it was in the 90s. It may have, been, may have been in the 80s. They actually rescued hundreds of Israelis from an area of known conflict with like a cruise ship or something, and they took them to a resort to help them like to relocate them from one place to another, this hugely famous uh, operation. I'm, I'm sure I'm getting totally wrong. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, but they do some very, very daring things, not to mention the fact that they, you know, they have no problem carrying out assassinations around the world if it keeps Israeli citizens alive. And that's what's so fascinating about how Mossad works, especially when you consider that against MI6 or CIA that have a very strict no assassination policy. That hasn't always been Allegedly. in effect. Hasn't always been in effect, but has most certainly been in effect in modern history. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'd be very disappointed if the CIA didn't assassinate people if as you, an American. I'm just being honest. If America knew most of what CIA did, they would be very disappointed. I, I mean, the United, the CIA is a, it's a, it's a government organization that's ruled by law. As much as the movies and conspiracy theorists want you to think otherwise. It is. Yeah, no, it's no. dictated that, by law. That's not what... All right, so that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, when you're going to the other places, though, the whole point is to break the rules. You're an intelligence service. That's what you do. I get it. You're saying... And there's people who are going to run with that one in the comments. Hilarious. But there's arguments to say that that has... Like, when, when I hear some of these guys, usually in internet, Reddit forums and stuff like that, list off every single thing, that's where I kind of laugh because it's like, all right, well, you think every single thing that's ever happened was perpetrated, but okay, no. But, like, there's things that happen because they're in the middle of these situations, and then, yes, you do have some bad people sometimes who do bad things, for sure, and I'll call out the CIA when they do that. But, like, when you say that they're not doing things that, that we would be, like, impressed with, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I also... Let me pull this back for a minute. Let's take it off the CIA for a second. Even just the little bit you're describing right there of Mossad, you started that out before that saying that it's mostly Israel's effective diplomacy and stuff that does things. 
that gains their international clout, that gains their influence. But it sounds like these are the exact type of things that would help gain that influence when you have talented individuals who are able to pull up this much brazen shit. You don't think, like, that they're doing that around the world to be able to, to protect themselves in a very hostile environment that they live in? I'm sure that's why they're doing it. I don't know that it's going to gain the influence that you might think it's going to gain. Like, the world doesn't work like people think things work in Hollywood, right? One, an, a country's state government is not impressed when your covert intelligence arm goes in and assassinates a threat to your future existence. That does not help you win friends and influence people on the world stage. Well, the whole point is they don't know. When you're Israel and you do stuff brazenly through Mossad, the whole world knows. Okay, okay, yes. Right? That does not win friends and influence people because what that does is it sends a message to everybody, we can do this to you if we want to also. So that's why that's, that speaks to just how talented their diplomats really are because their diplomats, even in the face of brazen Mossad operations, can still go up to a country and say, we only did that to this country, oftentimes it's Iran, because of this specific threat that they posed against us and that person that we assassinated, that bomb that we that we put on the car, you know, neutralized this individual on this day because of this specific thing, right? It's, it's a much more complicated game than you would think. It's not like people just want to be friends with the tough kid on the street because the tough kid can also beat you up too. So it's, it, I was getting the impression that what you were thinking is that both sides win influence. They don't. It's, if anything, it's that much more of a testament to the fact that Israel can make friends with the UAE and with Saudi Arabia, with Oman, sure. right, with Jordan, even in the face of them demonstrating its capabilities. Yeah, th there was a lot of things on the table there. That was my bad. So I, at the beginning of what you were saying, I, I wasn't following you for a second, but I completely understand what you're talking about when you're literally like putting a symbol on it and saying, we did this. Right. Fine. In order to win at the table, though, I don't think it's as simple as someone's just an expert negotiator who can go in there and make you their best friend and just be, you know, con somebody into thinking, oh, don't worry about that. I think there has to be some level of talent that acquires things to get you in that room. I think that's what the CIA effectively does mm. for us here. And, like, when I talk about I, – I joke about the assassination thing, but, like – yeah, there's some really bad people in the world, and part of part of intelligence agencies around the world is like if they can get their hands on someone and take them out quietly, who's awful. Hopefully, they're making the right judgment there, and like they actually are awful, and it's not just a, an abuse of power. But you know, having a guy like Joe Teddy in here, like that's what he did. So my first deployment was to Iraq, and the first time that I actually pulled the trigger shooting at somebody was at a hotel that we were staying at, and our hotel got attacked in the middle of the night by a bunch of douchebags that showed up outside, shot RPGs at that hotel, and I ran up on the roof with a bunch of other dudes, and they were across the street in an abandoned building, and then you can see their muzzle flashes. It was like whack a -mole. He was Ground Branch. He was the goodbye guy. You go there, we're not seeing them again. Not always. Sometimes it was capture. But you know what I mean? So, you know, you're saying Israel does this much more above board sometimes as a symbol. They got to be doing it not above board, though, too. You're talking about terrorists. Terrorists no. are completely different than world leaders. Or completely no. different than, like, seeing. There's no ground branch guy who has sat at this table and told you that he killed world leaders. Oh, yes, Or told yes, you that yes, he yes, killed yes. any kind of engineer or scientist. Yes. Well... I don't know about the last, that's a more complicated one, but world leaders, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. Unless it's like, that's what assassination is. 
neutralizing a terrorist cell is not considered assassination. Right, assassination has to do with a with a, a certain level of power that the individual who is being neutralized carries. That's right. Shit, I'm thinking. I'm. There's so much going on in my head right now. I'm, it's I'm, all good, man. That's I'm the curse of being the host. Some of, these, yeah. <laughs> some of these words are breaking my brain right now, but that's 100% right. Okay, so let me let me reset that then. So, forget the word assassination for a second. There are there are difficult missions that have to happen around the world. You know, in the middle of all this, I keep thinking about how you're examples you were given earlier being dropped into situations it's like you you're sent somewhere you're told okay you're gonna be the operator on this case here's all the information we've been getting here we the team that's been there here's everything you need to know you're the talent you can go in there and close the deal and take care of business how much of it though is like you are really an isolated cell at the cia where you're just brought in and you're read in on the things you do but you really don't know most of the stuff they're doing because you're not on a need-to-know basis. Even in, in a powerful position like yours, you're out in the field. You don't need to know about them working on some general in Russia if you're doing some mission in Tanzania. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it speaks to the fact that the idea that you think that someone in the field has power, I think that kinda, it's, that's where the, the whole thing starts to fall apart. Sure. When you're, really, when you're in the field, you have no power. It's all the people who are in the command offices or the command centers back in Langley who actually have the power. They're the ones who are read into multiple cases, multiple operations, and trying to deconflict. Generally speaking, when you're out in the field, you have the autonomy to do what you think is right and what you think is best, but you have a very narrow scope about what you're trying to execute. So going back to our initial conversation about the difference between the military and the agency, in the military, you have a very narrow scope and you have a very narrow set of your own decision-making capabilities because you have to operate within the confines of what your your supervisor said and their supervisor said and their supervisor said and you're being like closely monitored in every aspect of your military job like pilots pilots have a thousand people watching them at all times what's your altitude what's your airspeed you know what's your heading and how much does it vary from the flight plan that you set like it's not it's not a fun job when you're in the military the agency gave us much more flexibility than that but still just a very narrow scope we didn't know almost anything. If I'm walking down the streets of any city in Africa or Asia or Latin America, there's operations happening all around me I have no idea about. Sure. There might even be people who don't know that I'm there because they don't have the need to know that I'm there in their city or in their country. Um, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. That's how we compartmentalize things to keep the individual officer secure, but also how we keep other operations. That's the word I was looking for, compartmentalization. It seems like there is out of a necessity of the power of a secret and having the most limited number of people knowing it to avoid it getting out, there is significant compartmentalization right. at CIA. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a core to our methodology. Uh, it's how you can, it's not only how you make the most out of every officer, because this way you can have a junior officer who might get experience in Latin America, and then in their mid-career you can send them to Asia, and then sure. in their senior career, you can send them to Europe, right? Because you can compartmentalize what they were exposed to, and you can compartmentalize them from each of the operations where they were participating. So you get the benefit of all their skills and all their experience without having to share them or share their background or their operational history with everybody who works in all three locations. How often did you get to go on missions where you were working with other intelligence agencies surprisingly often but i wasn't mm -hmm. always the person that got to work with them directly so, what do you mean 
So whenever you, when you put an undercover intelligence officer from the United States with an intelligence officer from another country, you're basically outing the intelligence officer from the United States to that person, right? Yes. So if you were an intelligence officer for, say, Canada, and I'm an undercover officer for the United States, when we sit together and work together on a case, now I'm no longer undercover to you, which means you can go back to CSIS and you can be like, hey, here's the officer I sat with, here's his name, here's what he looks like, here's when I'm meeting him with him again, right? So I'm no longer undercover. Right. So what they try to do is they try to separate undercover operators mm away from other intelligence officers. There's a whole different set of officers who will work with foreign intelligence officers. So even with, like, what's it called? The the I-5? Five Eyes. Five Eyes. Yeah, fuck that one up, too. But even with the Five Eyes, which I guess that's America, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, who am I missing? Canada. Canada, duh. All right, so even with them, it seems like you never really... Like, you guys are friends... But you're the friends who are asking the bartender what he served you after you go to the bathroom type friends. Yeah, right. Yeah, there are no permanent friends or enemies, only permanent interests. Mm, that's a really good way. You got a lot of good ways to put it. That's <laughs> not my way. That's a quote that's been misquoted for a thousand years, but it's still useful. Hmm. So you didn't, it sounds like then, based on that explanation of the buffer, it's not like you really made a ton of... Uh, even a strong word to use here, but like relationships with people at these other agencies, maybe mid-level, right. lower, whatever. Right. Towards the end of my career is when I started getting to the place where I had to meet other intelligence officers. Now, why did that happen? Because remember how we were talking about the cone of uncertainty? Yeah. When you're a junior officer, it's easy to hide in your anonymity. But the more operations you execute, the more places that you visit, sure. the more exposure that you have, essentially your cover starts to, we call it, cover degrade. So... All of a sudden, you might still say that you're not CIA, but the evidence is starting to pile up that you really are. Mm -hmm. So for many officers in their mid-career and later, that's when they start to have so much covered degradation that they become more useful in that liaison role working with other intelligence services. Did you get to... Well, who, who you had said in the past, like you were really impressed by the Japanese, I think. Are there other ones as well that you got to work with that something stood out like well these guys are good at x i mean intelligence officers from most of the world are really good yeah. most of the world right especially when you're talking about the first world g7 countries uh the brits are amazing uh, Mossad is excellent the japanese are excellent uh the south koreans are very good australians are really interesting they're they're <laughs> like yeah i don't know about that one <laughs> They're really interesting. <laughs> that wasn't good. They're the best ones to hang out with when you want a beer, for sure. <laughs> but you've got some other first world countries out there that you're just kind of like, I can't believe you're an intelligence officer. Really? There are some countries out there where you meet people like that, and you're just like, yeah. And I don't really want to call them out sure. necessarily, but... You gotta tell me off camera. I'll tell you off camera. Okay. They know who they are. Wow. <laughs> Maybe you got a bad egg. I hope for their sake you got a bad. I'm mean, good for us, I guess. But still, yeah, I, I just I'm so fascinated by it because, you know, it seems like, you know, if, if you listen to like full blown conspiracy theories, you're like these people run the entire world at all times with all things. I think it's more like they're forced to. They're forced to play on the same fields at all times. And, yeah, some dirty shit happens sometimes, and you hope it's not you doing it. But, you know, it, it, you, you've had such an opportunity to, to just 
it, it's not like you're experiencing culture so much as you're experiencing the forces that drive them mm. and what you did. Mm. And that, you know, I could never do that. The best I can do is go visit these places and take some fucking pictures and meet some people at the bar. There's not. Well, I'm know, jealous of you now, man, because there's some places I can't do that anymore. So it's not that many, right? It's not that many, but some of the places that I've loved visiting the most are places I can't go back. Some places you lived. Some places I've lived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's hard. It's hard to say goodbye to that. One of the, one of my closest former agency peers right now used to live in Ukraine. And, uh, and, you know, it's just, it's heart wrenching to hear his stories about what it was like for him and his family. He's got four kids and his wife and they lived in Ukraine for almost two years and their kids had friends there and they played in schools and they visited historical sites and they got to do some just meet beautiful people and do beautiful things in a beautiful country. And then he left the agency. He went on and started building his own business and his own career. And then the invasion happened. Yeah. And when the invasion happened, like it just, it broke their heart. Like you can see the tears in his and his wife's eyes because now their children who were children in Ukraine, you know, four years ago, five years ago, now their children are much older, right? They're almost teenagers. So you can imagine your five-year-old or six-year-old at the playground and now that playground is a is a crater yes right and your your child is 13 they used to be eight it's uh it's a completely different world so it's it's heart-wrenching to think about to be an officer who has lived somewhere and seen how beautiful it can be and then to never be able to go back there again it's something that not everybody experiences it's a it's a hard thing yeah and i think that does get lost in all this even if you have to have other skills that make it i'm gonna use this word but like cold to your environment at all times because you have to be paranoid you have to assume the worst in people and stuff like that you just, people are still human beings you know they still enjoy places to go our enemies like our enemies are governments our mm -hmm. enemies aren't people that's right? yeah our enemies are governments and and the mission of the intelligence industry the mission of intelligence is to collect secrets about governments that give your government a way of keeping your own people safe mm. and sometimes that means you're keeping your people safe from some sort of outside attack but sometimes you're keeping your people safe by giving them the best possible information on a trade uh, a trade or a negotiation tactic that your president can use but in essence your enemy is governments not people so even when you're on mission in a country where you hate their government you can't help but fall in love with the people Right? They're just they're just living. They're just scraping by. It's just you see their their history, you see the culture, you see the colors, you see the art, you hear the music, right? You see people dancing in the streets, you see little girls and and mothers and children and husbands kissing wives and people dating. Like how do you not fall in love with humanity? Sure. You just hate the government that you have to work against. I could dig into that because there's a lot of diametrical opposition to some of the <laughs> earlier things you said, but then we'll be here for like 45 minutes just on that. And I want to make sure we point out that you're now like a fucking TV star on History Channel. <laughs> we haven't talked about this. we got to dig into this right now. That's true. I guess we got to dig into this, huh? You're on... Well, tell people what you've been doing because this, this episode's going to come out shortly after this premieres, I guess, because it's premiering in... Two days. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, so uh, not long, in, uh, late in 2022, I got a phone call uh, from an investigative team in Utah that was carrying out investigations into what was defined as high strangeness. So high strangeness kind of encompasses everything from 
from paranormal phenomenon all the way to UFO sightings and little green men and alien technology. But uh, essentially documented instances of things that can't be defined by modern science. And this team reached out to me and they asked me if I would be willing to be part of an advanced team that was going to start a new series of investigations. Now, whenever I hear an invite like this, usually I'm pretty skeptical. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know if you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> right? My name's Andrew Bustamante. I'm a former covert intelligence officer. I'm not a alien investigator. And I tried to give them that pushback, and they basically said, yeah, that's exactly why we're talking to you. Mm. So I went on to have a few more conversations, and it turns out that this uh, investigation, which, we, which came to be known as the Beyond Skinwalker Ranch investigation, was a part of a documentary effort by History Channel to document a scientific investigation into these reported areas of high strangeness all over the United States. And it was an extension of an experiment that has been carried out at Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, dating back three years, uh, and with, with just incredible amounts of data uh, collected by the lead investigator out there named Eric Bard and uh, an assigned astrophysicist named Dr. Travis Taylor. For people out there who aren't familiar with Skinwalker Ranch and what's going on, can you just give a, a basic history of that and, and some of the things that have been claimed over the years and who owns it today? Yeah, you know, it's hard to give a quick summary for a place like Skinwalker Ranch. So um, We got time. <laughs> it, in the 1970s and 80s, it really started to identify itself as a hot spot, if not potentially ground zero, for compounding high strangeness. Um, cryptid sightings. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a cryptid is, a cryptid is a, a pan-dimensional like, creature, something that does not look like it's from the, from the, from the Earth. Uh, but nobody really knows where it is from. So they had reportings of cryptids at this ranch. They had reportings of energy orbs or glowing balls of energy at multiple different altitudes, some right against the ground, some up high in the sky, ranging in size from the size of a basketball to the size of a Volkswagen. Uh, they had UFO sightings. They had UFO sightings in the sky, but they also had UFO sightings near Earth or near the ground level. Um, and then they had just all sorts of strange... Uh, energy and energetic kinds of activities. Batteries that would drain faster than normal, uh, cars that would just uh, spontaneously combust, uh, all sorts of strangeness. Just in this place. Just in this ranch. And that ranch had turned over ownership multiple times, um, and one of the previous owners was a gentleman named Bigelow, uh, Robert Bigelow. Bigelow. And Bigelow was part of a team that was a contractor for the U.S. federal government and supposedly investigating alien technology. So where Robert Bigelow goes, there's suspected alien technology. So when Bigelow was on Skinwalker Ranch and uh, these various types of strange sightings also happened at Skinwalker Ranch, that's when this facility, this location, caught the attention of a gentleman named Brandon Fugel, who's a very successful real estate entrepreneur um, and, uh, and businessman in Utah. So he decided to come in and purchase Skinwalker Ranch and then hire himself out of pocket was a part of a documentary effort by History Channel to document a scientific investigation into these reported areas of high strangeness all over the United States. And it was an extension of an experiment that has been carried out at Skinwalker Ranch in Utah dating back three years uh, and with, with just incredible amounts of data 
collected by the lead investigator out there named Eric Bard and uh, an assigned astrophysicist named Dr. Travis Taylor. For people out there who aren't familiar with Skinwalker Ranch and what's going on, can you just give a, a basic history of that and, and some of the things that have been claimed over the years and who owns it today? Yeah, you know, it's hard to give a quick summary for a place like Skinwalker Ranch. So um, We got time. <laughs> it, in the 19... Uh, 70s and 80s, it really started to identify itself as a hot spot, if not potentially ground zero, for compounding high strangeness. Um, cryptid sightings. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a cryptid is, a cryptid is a, a pan-dimensional like creature, something that does not look like it's from the from the from the earth, uh, but nobody really knows where it is from. So they had reportings of cryptids at this ranch. They had reportings of energy orbs or glowing balls of energy at multiple different altitudes, some right against the ground, some up high in the sky, ranging in size from the size of a basketball to the size of a Volkswagen. Uh, they had UFO sightings. They had UFO sightings in the sky, but they also had UFO sightings near Earth or near the ground level. Um, and then they had just all sorts of strange uh, energy and energetic kinds of activities. Batteries that would drain faster than normal, uh, cars that would just uh, spontaneously combust, uh, all sorts of strangeness. Just in this place? Just in this ranch. And that ranch had turned over ownership multiple times, um, and one of the previous owners was a gentleman named Bigelow, uh, Robert Bigelow. And Bigelow was part of a team that was a contractor for the U.S. federal government and supposedly investigating alien technology. So where Robert Bigelow goes, there's suspected alien technology. So when Bigelow was on Skinwalker Ranch, and uh, these various types of strange sightings also happened at Skinwalker Ranch, that's when this facility, this location, caught the attention of a gentleman named Brandon Fugel, who's a very successful real estate entrepreneur um, and, uh, and businessman in Utah. So he decided to come in and purchase Skinwalker Ranch, and then hire himself out of pocket a full-time research team to try to dig into what explains the strangeness at this ranch and is there any evidence to support that Robert Bigelow found something here. Now, you've talked about this on the past with Danny Jones over at Concrete about UFOs specifically and I guess like your stances there or thoughts. Just for people listening, though, can you outline what your thought is on life beyond Earth? I actually love the way you put this, and, and I've used it myself sometimes, but can you explain to people how, how you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I believe that there is other intelligent life in the universe, but I don't believe it because I think we've seen it. I believe it because I think it is statistically impossible to rule out mm -hmm. that there could be other intelligent life in the universe. Just the fact that we exist make it too statistically probable that another intelligent life form exists. And if you just look at the United, if you just look on our planet, we have other intelligent life on our planet, right? You have monkeys, you have dolphins, you have different creatures that would classify as intelligent life. So to think that there isn't other intelligent life in the universe is just statistically improbable. There must be. Now, whether that means that we've seen them or that they visit us in UFOs or that they look like little green men, I can't say that that's true or false, but I do believe that there must be intelligent life out there. That position that I have is one of the reasons that when I was invited to be part of this investigation, I was very eager to say yes, because if I, if I get a chance to participate in the investigation firsthand, then I know I can trust my own data more than I have to trust anything somebody else tells me in the future. 
Yeah, so you're not... Point being, you want to see things that are definitive, and you tend to think that a lot of a lot of the folklore stories we've gotten kind of aren't it because they there's holes in the story they don't make sense whatever and so now when these guys approached you they're like well we want you to come poke the holes in those stories and see if there's actually something legit so first of all how long were you filming this so we were on the road actively investigating for three months so on the road you guys were going a bunch of other places correct correct so our mission was to do two things First, to research and identify hotspots around the United States that had similar histories, similar reportings, similar suspicion to Skinwalker Ranch. That was part one of the mission. Mission number two was to actually visit these locations and execute some of the same scientific studies that had been done at Skinwalker Ranch to see if we could replicate similar, if not the same, results at these other locations. So now we're trying to both find locations of strangeness and then also execute uh, like demonstrative scientific method experiments to see if we can collect hard data, measurable data that mm. that is that corroborates what they've done at Skinwalker Ranch. It's very different. You're exactly right. I'm the kind of person who doesn't like listening to stories and hearing tales about firsthand accounts and what people have seen. Do I believe that they believe that? Sure. But that doesn't mean that it actually happened. I am a much bigger fan of some kind of scientific efforts that can be recreated so if i go somewhere and i take the temperature and the temperature says 87 degrees when i come to you i can say julian it's 87 degrees down the street two left hand turns and stand at the intersection of wasatch and maine Mm. right and then you can take the same thermostat the same thermometer and you can go down there right now and you can test it for yourself and you can come back and say well actually i got 86 degrees andy but we're pretty close Mm. i'm a much bigger fan of hard data rather than i come back from the street and say hey julian it's hot as balls out there and you go out there and you're like well i didn't think it was too uncomfortable Mm. right and that's what was so exciting about this opportunity we're carrying out investigative experiments we're using radiation detectors we're using uh, tools that measure radio uh, um, radio signals in the atmosphere we're using uh, tools that that are uh, measuring uh, energy in the soil energy in the sky we're listening to different wavelengths we're we're launching rockets we're setting off explosions we're digging in the ground like we're doing active investigations to try to collect data to see if the data we collect matches what they have on skinwalker ranch is this like the thing that surprised me about you jumping right into this? Obviously, like it had your you were like, okay, this is legit. But like, you know where a lot of our heads go on this stuff when we hear Ooh, History Channel's doing a doing a fucking reality show on Skinwalker Ranch. Like it seems like oh, it's gonna be all scripted. Like oh my god, look, we found a thing. Oh look at that dot on the screen. But it sounds like in talking with you off air about this, it was very much. No, we're just doing these investigations and the cameras are rolling. So they weren't, like, telling you what to say, you're telling me, and things like that? That was legit? Because I I had a chance to watch the first episode. It was really good. But my head's like, is this scripted? Like, it still goes there. And I know a lot of people have it go there. So uh, I wasn't sold. I say I was eager. What that means is I was super interested. When when I first got the phone call, I thought it was make-believe. And then when uh, I started talking to some of the, the casting executives and the, the different people at, at History Channel and the production company making it, uh, they started talking to me and I was like, okay, this, this sounds like you guys might be trying to do this right. 
But I took a trip to Miami to actually sit with the, uh, the showrunner and the lead producer, as well as my co-host. And my co-host is a gentleman named Paul Beban. And Paul is an Emmy Award-winning journalist who's reported for Al Jazeera and reported for multiple PBS and other news stations here in the United States. So a very well-respected journalist. And I had two days to sit with these two gentlemen, and all we did was talk about exactly what you just said, right? Because Paul didn't want to be part of a project that was going to be fiction. And I didn't want to be part of a project that was going to be a waste of my time. Like, I want to find real answers to real questions and have a real adventure. If I'm just going to go from, like, Holiday Inn to Holiday Inn (laughs) and, like, wave my hands in the sky and have to do that and get paid pennies to do it, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Yeah. And it was sitting with that producer, his name is David Carr, sitting with David, David made it very clear. He was like, this is, this is how this is going to work, guys. We're going 